Slightly overweight, and I'm not as famous as I used to be. <laughs> you should want to see my penis, but I was just thinking, maybe you and me could get together in my trailer. Sorry, did he show his penis in a movie? <laughs> his Sandman penis. The Sandman. The Sandman, and my affectionate nickname for him. My favorite thing about Adam Sandler is that he's reached a stage in his career where he's literally printing money with his movies. Like, he can just do anything, set up a camera, and make fart noises, and people will go see it. And because of that bankability, it's basically like, where do you want to go on vacation uh, this year, Adam? You want to go to Tahiti? All right, bring fucking David Spade and Chris Rock with you, and uh, we got a movie. You know, we'll, we'll go down a water slide. That'll be hilarious. Sure. And call up Chris Rock. Oh, no. Oops! <laughs> hey, since we all got the chewing noises going on, we should probably do our obligatory we'll do introduction. Opening. We'll do like the the end of the show at the beginning of the show, and we'll flip it around. <laughs> we'll flip it around, flip it up topsy turvy. Chris Eaton's here. Hey, that Chris Eaton, not the one that you're thinking of, the yeah. real Chris Eaton. Yeah. Toronto Bur- well-to-do Brand author. Black. Brennan Black in the house. Brennan Black. Mouthful cookie. Grammy winning Christian rock singer. <laughs> Tell your friends. Uh, welcome to Idea Grave. Idea Grave. We got some stale cookies from across the street at Ideal Coffee. They're not they so seem stale. To be, they seem to be everything cookies. It seems to be a little bit of the dough that they had left over from each of the other brands they sell. Molded together into a synergy of... Peanut butter, raisin, ginger, some what else is in there? Chocolate chips. Everybody's different. I uh, yeah. uh, a surprise in your mouth. Yep. This is the idea grave episode brought to you by Everything Cookies. <laughs> Old style Pilsner. Uh, what are those? Almonds? Oh what was yeah, that giant uh, that giant Buddha beer that you had with the mm-hmm. psychedelic elephant on it. What was uh, that called? I forget what it's called. Phillips Phillips screwdriver. Amnesiac. Amnesiac. Oh, <laughs> Lord. Double IPA. It's pretty good. Just before we started this, we took a little hike up to the beer store on the corner of Howard I did, Park. I, I didn't buy myself at the beer store. Yeah. I'm too snobby for that. Mm-hmm. I got my shitty lowbrow beer at the beer store. <laughs> I was wearing my fucking slippers into the beer store. With your coffee. My coffee. Jesse, Jesse takes his coffee around the neighborhood. If he goes to the beer store, which is like five blocks away. I mean... Takes- it's a great way to, to start thinking of Toronto as being an extension of your living room. Mm. You know, just take a little stroll around the neighborhood and pretend uh, you got a bigger house than you do. The square <laughs> footage of your apartment is amazing. Yeah, it's, it's a lot more temperate outside mm-hmm. in this sweat box. I, I apologize that the accommodations aren't better, Chris Eaton. It's uh, it's a little bit hot in here. I'm thinking about buckling and getting an air conditioner, but no, I haven't no, no. quite done it yet. It's box fam. Yeah, it's just a big box fan. That's it. I have a box fan in the other room for when I sleep. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it works well. I was going to move it into the room, but it would have picked up on the microphones and been quite distracting. We were uh, ripping on Adam Sandler. Yeah, what, like, so what about Punch Drunk Love? Oh, no, no, no. Uh, Brennan was going to tell oh. about... Oh, uh, wait. He had a close encounter. He had a close encounter with the so Sandman. I, I go into work the other day early. I get called into work early, and I'm just sort of like, ah, fine. I work at a restaurant. <laughs> So I went in, and as I'm walking in, 
my other coworker walks up to me and goes, that's Adam Sandler. <laughs> the Adam Sandler. <laughs> and I looked over, kind of laughing at him, because it was early, and I thought he was joking, just like making fun of somebody, which we do a lot at the restaurant. Uh, and I looked over, and it was just him. And then he winked at me, and then he wouldn't stop winking at me for like the entire time I was so there. He was by himself. No, 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 with no. his wife and kids. Oh. So they sat at the bar and they had some food. You got a burger, no bun. But every time that I would sort of look over my shoulder, because when you're you're working on the line, you're sort of looking around the restaurant, like seeing how things are going, and like looking at the servers. I would make eye contact with him, and he would invariably just wink at me. <laughs> Every time. Did you start to be suspicious that you were in an Adam Sandler movie and that he was like some sort of guardian angel character that had showed up to give you advice and stuff? No, I, I think it, it had something to do with like him sort of acknowledging that he knew that I knew who he was. Mm-hmm. I, I was looking at him and he, he was, he was like winking know. me like, yep. That's Sa- me. That, that's me. The Adam Sandler. <laughs> you wouldn't believe that I eat my burgers with that. <laughs> I had the same experience with Tom Cruise in Rossesville. What? We ran into Tom Cruise all, all, nearly alone. It was like on a Sunday morning. There wasn't a lot of foot traffic in the neighborhood. He was walking with like some Asian assistant. And he looked completely out of place because he was wearing a black trench coat and fucking sunglasses and trying to do the stereotypical inconspicuous celebrity <laughs> thing in fucking like Rossesvale, Canada. Like we give a fuck. And so he's passing. The two of them are passing me. And I just kind of give him a little n- wink and a smile like that's very cute. But like clearly it's Tom Cruise. You totally. know, one of the most recognizable people. He's very small. He's a little yeah. guy. Little guy. Yeah. But yeah, he uh, he totally um, broke character, like when he knew, when he realized Sorry, that broke, I wasn't broke character of his life. No, he broke character of <laughs> trying to play the inconspicuous celebrity and did that stereotypical Tom Cruise clap slash Hollywood laugh kind of thing. <laughs> like when I yeah, what I was just like inconspicuous is yeah. like yes, I'm not going to bother you. I'm, I don't care that you're here. That was that was the one thing about seeing the Sandman, where like the second I came in. One couple came up to him and got a picture with him. And he was sort of just like, you could see on his face, it was just oh, the like... here it comes. Here oh. comes the wave of fans. Yeah, like, oh, okay. And I mean, our restaurant is really small. It's off the beaten path. It's sort of hard to get to, and it's not advertised very much. So I reckon that he probably came in for that reason, because there's like a limited number of people... And we're probably not going to hassle him. Mm-hmm. And right off the bat, this couple hassles him. And my instinct was just to tell them to fuck off. Hey, lady, leave Adam alone. Well, just because like he was He's with his two daughters. His two daughters who look are, just like him. Do look, look just like him and are very young. <laughs> Daddy, can I have? Pretty, Daddy, can I do the oh, baby voice? Oh, no, da- that's my baby voice. Oh, Daddy, can I get the But um, we sure get Mm, uh, oh, water tastes better. <laughs> um, they all they all order from the menu like that. They all use that voice. But he was with his daughters and his wife. Yeah. And everybody else in the restaurant had an immediate like reaction of like seeing this couple being like, "Okay, we're not going to bother him." Adam, his wife turns to him and says, "Adam, you told me you never take us out because you get swarmed by fans constantly." Uh, it, it's coming. Don't worry. Don't worry. Oh, here they come. Here they come. They're going to ask me any minute for an autograph. Oh, oh, oh. Sing the Hanukkah song, Adam. 
<laughs> but so for the rest Opera of, voice. for the rest of the time, it was a really interesting um, like scope into Adam Sandler's life and what his kids are like because he was we in our restaurant window we have like comics and soda books written on it. It's like from an old movie set mm-hmm. that got left up and we just sort of like left it there because mm-hmm. we don't have any other signage. So it just says like comic books, school supplies, ice cream. He goes, oh, you got comic books to sell, yeah? <laughs> and and we're like, oh no no, we, we we do actually we picked up some comic books and put them in the restaurant so that mm-hmm. people could read them. And you went over and there's just like a crate full of old Star <laughs> he stuffs, he stuffs them in his pants. <laughs> no, old Star Wars memorabilia. Oh, that's cool. Like all these old Star Wars books and comic books, like mm-hmm. these like seventies and eighties uh, redos of the movie in comic book form. And he freaked out and was like, and then what? He took that opportunity to teach his daughters of what Star Wars was. Oh man! Because they didn't Beautiful. know; mm-hmm. they didn't fucking know. And but watching this next generation learn through him, they were like pointing at Darth Vader, being like, "Oh, so who's that?" He's like, "Oh, you want to see the actor that played her? Just Google James Earl Jones." And they pulled their phones out and were like googling James Earl Jones at the bar <laughs> to figure out who he was. They were like deconstructing the actual production of Star Wars before they'd ever even seen it. And Daddy, this, the CNN voice was, was Darth Vader? This, Simba? This is CNN. Mufasa. Mufasa. Another movie I have not seen. Fuck <laughs> off. Get out of here. <laughs> you haven't seen The Lion King, man? Did you throw out your Lion television? King. Have you yeah, been trying what's... to like, keep your no, children away from... No, that's a period, I think, that where I Are would have seen Pixar that. When's Lion King come out? Like 1994 or five, something like that. 1994 or five. Yeah, yeah, really? definitely. Yeah, I don't know. I was a, I was a young boy. I have no thing. idea what I was doing then, but I did not. see Man, that movie is fucking amazing. Yeah. Oh, unbelievable. Amazing. Better than average. And last night, actually, this is a this is a really weird coincidence. But there's a there's a Lion King game for the Super Nintendo. I played it. It's good. Uh, and I've never been able to beat it. And last night. I got really stoned and watched a whole bunch of TV and just sat there and just cleared the entire Lion King game to the end. Very disappointing. Speed run. <laughs> no, not as, no. It was very laborious and took a long time. It was a hard fucking game, actually. Even all after all that time, it was very difficult. What but, happened at the end? What was the payoff? Uh, you have to fight Scar over and over and over, and it's, yeah. very, it's like you have to keep slashing him a lot. Like I'm talking like. 40, 50 times, and then he moves on, and you do it again, like, 40, 50. It was really, like, I thought I was doing something wrong. Like, I wasn't beating the game. I kept being, like, oh, my slow to, like, go over here or something. Like, I keep slashing him, and nothing's happening. Yeah, it's so, like a fatality. You got to get it in the right spot. Yeah, the so, so my instinct was, like, oh, you're doing something wrong. But, mm-hmm. no, in reality, it was that I just had to stand there and slash my lion paw at him, like, 50 times. It's a metaphor for life. And then the la- the last <laughs> shot, it, you take back over Pride Rock, and then the last shot is just you standing on Pride Rock in silhouette, roaring. and then the the yeah roaring, and then the fucking credits roll. That's it. There's no there's no like narration. That game was so tough when I was a kid, though, and that scene specifically, I just can't wait to be king. Mm-hmm. There, it's all like. Uh, memory. It's so you have to memorize this whole track of being able to press up and down like at the right time. And as a kid, mm. like you have two times to get it, and then if you lose, you start at the beginning of the game again. It's kind of like a multi-platform thing where you're bouncing on draft heads, right? Yeah, yeah. And that. if you don't remember it, 
Like you have to play through the first two levels again, and then you get back to that spot, and you're like, ah, oh, was it up or down? And then you die two times, and it's all over, and you go back to the beginning of the game. As a kid, I found that to be completely impossible to like mm-hmm. achieve. Mm-hmm. And now, like you know, aging twenty something, now, now now you've succeeded in life. Now I now I beat it, and now I I don't know how to feel about it. Yeah. <laughs> I sort of wish I had left it like a weird like. Uh, part of my childhood, one of those like mythological things. My childhood, yes, sir. Like, yeah, n- never see, beat it. They have no goals. This is the kind of thing that um, unlimited wealth would would put in front of you, right? Like yeah. unlimited wealth. Suddenly, you can get that Sega Genesis or Dreamcast or whatever the system was, you know, on eBay. Money is no object. You can play that game that you never beat should have been able to revisit, and and you can like completely puncture all of those old disappointments yeah. and memories and stuff and go like you know what i was fucking dumb when i was a kid yeah that's an easy game that was the th- that's the thing is making yourself as a kid look like a dummy mm-hmm. <laughs> is there an unbeatable game is there still a game that has not been beaten i don't even know what oh got. that's an interesting actually question. actually be donkey kong uh, no, Donkey Kong. I've well, I've seen the movie. You can sort of, which is a great movie. Beat it. You run. It runs out of memory. Of. It has no ending. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, no, no. But follow you, up. Really? Is that what yeah. Mm-hmm. You so, get what, to, so, so the King of Kong though, he's going for the highest score. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that, there should, there should be no highest score. No, there there is. Oh, because, at some point it just dies. Yeah. The yeah, whole screen goes. It's blank. kind of a time limit. You right. get you get to the end of this yeah. this level sequence, and it doesn't have any more memory to process the level, right. so it just so ends. It just stops. So the way to get the high score is to sort of milk the earlier levels. Yeah. Like you spend more time than you should be on the earlier levels, racking up points, so that by the time you work your way to the end. You have just like a few hundred more points than the last guy that got to the end of the game. So isn't there a cheap way of doing it where you can just spend hours and hours on the third board? Or Uh, can you only really get big points? But then you'd have to finish it after that. And if you spend hours and hours and hours on the same level... But what's the point of finishing it? You'd exhaust yourself. Well, no, yeah. The score is the thing. The score is the goal. Uh, completionist high score, no. For like the Donkey Kong records, they want they want a high score that actually represents you finishing so you the game. You can't just jump over barrels over and over again for sixteen hours. I, and actually, I think, I think, but I, I think the documentary is just about finishing it. No, that it's almost impossible to finish it. Yeah, and then and then the the score that you get, it's always around like uh, it was around like eight hundred thousand. There's a crazy electri- electrical storm going on over there. Like I don't behind know, if you, yeah, behind you. And every time it happens, the lights flicker. I'm really worried we're gonna. Uh, Lose that power. Oh, it won't matter. We've got this recorded to to uh, to, to SD special SD solar power. I have all sorts of crazy advanced SD cards for my uh, video camera, but I use them on the podcast thing. Mm. Technically, we could record like an eighty-six hour podcast. Yes, start reading, carrying the microphone around Let, in our bodies. Let's make the Empire State Building mm. film of podcasts. And <laughs> and I just got a wireless microphone, so we can start. Booyah! We can start doing narrative stuff like out in the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, follow up to King of Kong. There was a Vice did a, a short follow up documentary. Um, it's maybe only like fifteen minutes long. Yeah, but it's about how after that movie came out, there was a couple people. Uh, There's a lot of people who saw the movie and obviously got like crazy Kong fever. They're like, "Oh, I could do better than that." Kong fever. There, there was a uh, there was a Chinese dentist from the states. Who actually did? He beat. It. He smoked all the records. Mm-hmm. He got into first, and then there was a Montrealer, this Montreal bodybuilder, who was like this weird cocky guy who who made it. He wanted to almost make a new movie 
I feel like the way he was driving the drama was that he thought they'd make a movie about him, but he started calling out the Chinese dentist in public, being like, weak little pussy, I'm a big, strong man, how could I not be better at Donkey Kong? Listen, bro, do you even lift? And they and they went to competition, and the, the fucking dentist gets like an, a million points again, wow. and the, the bodybuilder barely breaks like 80,000. Like he plays the worst game of Donkey Kong ever. So he didn't have any game to back yeah. it up. Yeah, it was just all a just talker, like a uh, shell sunning, if you will. Yeah, just trying to just trying to create potential movie drama. Just being like, "Nah, fuck you, man. I'm the big strong man." Trying to be basically uh, what's his face, Billy Mitchell, mm-hmm. being the uh, the evil the asshole. Heel. The heel. That'd have been funny if he bench pressed the Donkey Kong machine over his head and threw it <laughs> in, in a rage. In a Donkey Kong-esque rage. There's a lot of talk about, <laughs> how, about how that movie was skewed to make Billy Mitchell look like more of a bad guy oh, than, totally. he, Every than he actually was. Selective editing. Yeah, and he's, like, you can tell in the movie there's all those awkward moments where he's he's trying to make it like a movie. Mm-hmm. Like, there's one point where he's, like, talking on the phone. He's like, uh, they'll never have uh, seen anything as, as exciting as this. Nefarious. <laughs> he he like looks at the camera. It's like, oh, he's completely acting and he's really bad at it. Yeah. And they've just cut together the existing footage to really hit home but that again, Steve Webb then, is like a amazing family man. Yes. And but, that Billy Mitchell is a hot sauce baron yes. who like hates the world and but is like then again. Um, there is something that can be derived by just looking at the two men. Like clearly, Steve Weeby is a family guy who works at as a high school science teacher and billy mitchell wears an american flag tie every day giant like feathered mullet haircut and purple dress shirt even with with selective editing you have to have a character that's going to make pronouncements about like how he's a legendary the one of the the greatest like all-time achievers in any sport you know, all of these pronouncements that he makes as like the professional face of yeah. indie gaming or like a- arcade gaming, you know, he is that guy. Yeah. It's just maybe he's not as nefarious. Yeah. And never in the movie. The thing is that like they paint him out to be this like weird evil villain. But also there's like a number of, there's like they have a dude on who just plays a really heartfelt acoustic song. It's like. Billy Mitchell joystick whiz. <laughs> Just like a really like folk song like Billy Mitchell's on the Yeah, move. the referee guy. Yeah, and they they never really he's, he's detract kind of from the fact that he actually was like bar none best arcade game player of his time mm-hmm. and it was like the first guy to ever play a perfect Pac-Man It's that classic game. underdog story though, you know? People want to see the best in the world, the Apollo Creed type guy get knocked out by the the underdog. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like really archetypal. Steve Weeby is like the sly slow. Oh, and they put him in the Vice documentary. That's the best part is that Billy Mitchell and Steve Weeby are in the Vice documentary for about like ten seconds each. <laughs> and Steve Weeby has aged so much and so poorly. Oh, from all the video Since game that playing, movie? he looks oh. terrible. Oh, like no. just like really pale and like oh, kind of shitty. No. It's like oh man, you look bad and it's no wonder that they only put you in this new version of the documentary for like 10 seconds because nobody wants to have that like lovely that lovely like buttercup family hero just look like a fucking ghoul like just be totally podgy and shitty games does to you yeah Yeah. (laughs) and prophetic because that's what his daughter says right like in that great scene where 
he's reading through the Donkey Kong strategy and he's kind of like half paying attention. And I forget what she says, but it's a total backhanded compliment. And she's like, yeah, and some people ruin their lives with video games. And he's just like sitting there. He's like, yeah, okay, honey. And he's like reading Donkey Kong strategy instead of hanging out with his kid. Yeah, she's her, his daughter ends up saying like a bunch of weird stuff about the Guinness Book of World Records and stuff like that in that movie that totally is this awesome subplot of his daughter realizing how crazy her dad is mm-hmm. at that young and age. Yeah, I didn't even have kids at that point, but I remember just that scene where he's like, about to break the record and his kids like my I, butt. I have to go <laughs> wipe my butt stop playing donkey kong i have to use the toilet like, he's got the vhs like, going he's like yeah. oh my god he's like no kids go away i'm a i'm a i'm doing really well and wipe my butt kong. wipe my butt he's like i'll in a minute i'll be there in a minute here you can have one arm one arm <laughs> okay. come here bring it over here <laughs> i think he actually says that i'h bring it over here <laughs> Jesus. Back to life. Everybody poops. Speaking of poop, I felt such a sense of <laughs> I felt such a sense of uh injustice the other day. I was mowing the grass out in the front and I came back in the house and I was like, it smells like dog shit. And then I looked down at my shoes. Fucking dog shit all over my shoes. From the grass. One of my neighbors had one of their filthy beasts defecate on my lawn <laughs> and left it there. Listen here, <laughs> 77 Wright Avenue in Toronto, Ontario. I'm Any calling you out, dog These walkers. 75. These motherfuckers <laughs> leaving their dog shit on my lawn. Has it ever happened to you, Brennan? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. How about you, Chris? No. No dog has ever shit on your lawn? Oh, <sighs> my God. Well, no, I hope it we never have, happens. We have because squirrels a lot. Don't That's you remember annoying. blind... The blind dog that lived at Manning when we were both there, <laughs> that lived next door to Manning, would always. Uh, what was his name? Oh, fuck! What was his name? <laughs> oh, I can't remember. Was it what, Charlie? Was it something like that? But ba- Bailey, Barley, but. <sighs> Anyways, he was a a blind cocker spaniel. It was like twelve years old. He was dumb as dumb. He would walk into walls. He would bite children. He was. Um, uh, barely hanging on to life, some sort of like zombie creature, but he knew enough to come into our yard, and that was the place to shit that his parents <laughs> wouldn't the, have to pick it up. Yeah, but this dog routinely would go completely AWOL. He couldn't see anything. You could wave your, your hand right in front of his face, and he have no idea you were there, but somehow he would make his way from Bloor and Manning all the way down to like King Street... <laughs> He would work his way down. Just to shit on your lawn. They would scour the neighborhoods saying like, where did Bailey go? Where did Bailey go? Oh, he's south of college. They found him south of college. South of college, like so far from where he was. And it was the funniest thing because the neighbors that owned this dog, he was the beloved pet of the woman that lived next door. And the partner of her, the guy, hated that fucking dog. Steve was a fucking asshole and hated that dog. And every time the dog would go missing, he'd pray that it wouldn't come back, but it always did. They'd always <laughs> find that dog. Oh, I, I there's a really unique experience where one day I, I, I was talking to him and somehow I got roped into doing mushrooms with him <laughs> where where he was like, oh, I, I got a whole, bu- whole bag of mushrooms. You want to do some? And there's like a, a friend of mine over at his house. So I was like, all right, bro. Yeah, yeah, okay. No. So, so, so I did a bunch of these mushrooms. Oh, oh. Listen again. 
Hello. Ah, oh, there we go. Uh, uh, uh. Is the mic all the way in? Is the cord all the way in the, yeah. the thing? Yeah, it is. It's, I think this microphone. Uh, there I am. Anyways, did a bunch of mushrooms with the neighbor. And uh, at some point I decided, okay, I got to go home. I can't hang around with him. <laughs> so I went home. and then, But home ended up being way more intimidating because there's no one on mushrooms there. And so I was like, okay, I got to get back. I got to get back to somebody who's on the same wavelength that I'm on right now. <laughs> go on the internet and anybody by, else on mushrooms. By the t- I went back to Steve. I went back next door. And in the 10, 15 minutes that I had left, he had lost the dog. <laughs> The dog had run away, and he but he was so fucked up on mushrooms. He was like, "Brandon, you gotta help me look for this dog, man." So here's gonna kill me. My wife's gonna kill. So me. So here's us at like eight o'clock at night on a Sunday <laughs> on, mushroom, on mushrooms, mushrooms, walking for a blind dog, walking around the neighborhood, screaming this dog's name, like looking in the bushes and just laughing and like rolling around in people's <laughs> yards while we look for the dog and like constantly accepting like ah oh, this dog's never coming back and steve would always be like yeah you know what maybe he will never come back maybe he's just gone for good now and i'd be like oh no you can't do that man can't give up steve <laughs> you can't give up we gotta find your fucking dog man your blind dumb dog that was a very <laughs> and sh- then you did that was the last time that uh was that- it a glorious moment when you found finally oh, found well, no dog? we didn't find him he came home no he uh with uh, the spca found him <gasps> and he had tags. Yeah, he came back. Yeah, oh, the next crazy. day. Did you have to deal with the SPCA while you're on mushrooms? No, no, it was the next day. So I think Steve, uh, Steve had to deal with it in his his hangover. But we, yeah, at some point in the night, we were just like, well, I guess he's gone. <laughs> Those two were had a lot of adventures. I remember when the cops towed away his like his his party trailer thing that he had constructed for his carpentry business. He had like $10,000 worth of carpentry equipment and a horse trailer in front of his house, but he didn't have a permit to park there. So the, the cops took his trailer and he was convinced that somebody had stolen it. He's like, some fucking gangsters stole my all my equipment. That's my whole livelihood. Blah, 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 motherfuckers. Turned out that it, it, got, it got towed. It got towed, dude. You didn't have a parking permit. Oh, yeah, he was pissed. And then the other time, like, my window was in very close proximity to their house. Like, if you see uh, my bedroom and there's, like, a, a three-foot alleyway and then their bedroom. And one night they woke me up screaming, bloody murder. Oh, my God, I thought he killed her. Like, there was just, there's just, like, terrifying screams and, like, he's killing me, blah, blah, blah. And I was, like, in that weird kind of, like, twilight haze of a dream where you're like did i just hear someone screaming that they're gonna get murdered and then you you get in this weird kind of twilight zone where you're like do i gotta rush into the house and like save somebody's life tonight um but luckily after about 15 minutes there was a lot of like crying and apologizing and stuff and i was like all right they're sorting it out (laughs) it's gonna be jesus uh if they start shouting again i might have to call the police anyways they got a divorce (laughs) <laughs> yeah eventually yeah yeah he ended up owing me a lot of money what? and skipping town and going to uh going to the states for the garage rent yeah yeah he was renting the garage and he ran up the power bill like crazy and then he took <laughs> off over the border and just never came back tough tokes bro tough tokes bro <laughs> he built like a, a a man cave in our backyard in our old garage and he was sourcing like bicycles and welding them together into custom 
uh, stunt bikes or something. Well, something that, you could... that was the gangsters before him who started that operation. Oh, he wasn't doing that as well. I thought he had all he, sorts of custom bikes. He was. He was. It's just we had a few gangsters living in our garage who had turned it into a legitimate fourteen-year-old hangout chop shop <laughs> slash chop shop. Uh, they had drawn stick figures on the wall of themselves and, and labeled like, them. Drawn, drawn right. all of the their old favorite like skate shops and like drawn the logos really badly like just a, like a four-year-old had drawn them and wrote chill spot chill in spot big blue letters and one of our roommates jerome went out there one time he's like oh man those guys are jokers those guys are jokers they, they're just back there playing playstation and just like working on their dirt bikes because there was an aura of mystery right we yeah. were like who the fuck has our landlord rented that that garage out to there's some, they look like some pretty hard dudes. They got like neck tattoos and stuff and they're going in there and we don't know what they're up to and they're up all night and stuff. They're and then stealing our, our power and, then, and going uh, in there at like four in the morning. We're talking to our roommate Jerome about it. He's like, man, why don't you just go out there and see what's happening? Right? So he confidently just goes, knocks on the door and he enters the place. We don't see him for like an hour and he comes back. He's like, those guys are jokers. The jokers, man. <laughs> they're just sitting back there. They got PlayStation. They got a fucking PlayStation set up in there. They got a flat screen TV. They just play PlayStation back there. <laughs> and smoking reefer. And uh, they had turned it into a kid chop shop. They were steal un- stealing bikes and repainting them and stuff in the garage and then trying to sell them. And they got uh, so bold that they went down to the Bixie racks and they stole Bixie bikes not knowing that there's fucking like GPS in the <laughs> Bixie bikes yeah and the cops like showed up and and gave them a hard time I, I don't know if anybody got arrested no but they the whole bunch of bunch of people in the neighborhood to complain about them because they were just like running their dirt bikes in the alley <laughs> and playing like loud like hair metal in the alley it was so crazy they stole a bike from me at one point it got into the point where like I was like did you guys see a big road bike locked to the back of this porch like ah nah man i don't think so and then i looked into the garage and it was just hanging up on a hook in the garage i was like you fucking motherfuckers god damn it did you say fucking motherfuckers or it's like it looks just like that one did you find that in my Is yard that it and then the, two days later one of the dudes came over he's like man you sell weed and i was like how did you know that because <laughs> i did and he was like, ah, oh, you should try some of this. And just gave me like a big handful of weed and just winked at me and went back into the garage. And I couldn't tell whether or not he was trying to be my supplier or just apologizing for stealing, for stealing that stealing bike. bike. And I was mm. like, all right, yeah. Kids these days. I just admitted to sell- selling weed on a podcast. I should probably... Uh, I can No, you, ad- you admitted you used to sell weed. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the statute of limitations for something <laughs> that happened four years ago? I'm clean now, Sorry, officer. You mean fourteen years? Fourteen ago. years ago, <laughs> uh, my Jesse put me up to it. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed, you know, it's it's equivalent to flipping burgers in this this generation. Like the fuck, economy's in the toilet. How's it? How's a kid supposed to? Dude, and uh, honestly, the sad reality of selling weed is that uh, you don't make money on it. Mm-hmm. Unless you are supplying to dealers. Right, or growing and, it. Yeah, unless you're growing mm-hmm. or supplying it and moving it in such a crazy volume, mm-hmm. the average guy who's dealing you weed and selling you like 30 bucks here and 30 bucks there, 
is making such a small profit margin on that product that he's maybe barely just clearing the amount that he smokes out of it. Mm -hmm. Because your average weed dealer is also a complete chronic. Just Just enabling their dope habit. Yeah, it's it's funny to even think that cops would bother with any, like, street-level weed dealer because it's like... Yeah, maybe you can uh, you can rack up a couple tickets or a couple arrests onto your like quota, but mm-hmm. it's really not worth it. Those people don't have any money. They're just like they're selling weed because they're just trying to grasp at like making a bit of money. Mm-hmm. I've never met a rich weed dealer. <laughs> I met some rich coke dealers, but I've never met a rich weed dealer. Yeah, I mean the the coke dealers can kind of have their way, right? You got a lot of rich kids. And uh, a perceived market value that's much, much higher. Mm hmm. Uh huh. So that about wraps things up, I think. Yeah, too. I think, I think Chris. We, is we've lost sight of our culture. Uh, <laughs> talking about dealing drugs <laughs> and gangsters. Yeah, just reminiscing. I was going to point out that I don't think you ever have to worry about incrimination, considering that I don't think that there's any legal. Uh, documents tying you to this earth like don't you not even exist on paper like brennan black is just a concept sort of he's just a story he might I, be a man of myth 20, 26 i've never ever paid or filed taxes since when ever he doesn't I've, have a i've tax never record. i've he never done it a, even a once health card does it have a, a license I've, I've never had any photo id of any kind uh yeah i off make, the grid but not 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 intentionally off the grid, just uh, out of comfort's sake. It's really easy oh, for I've, me to sort I've of. I've had like, a whole bunch of friends from college that were in the same scenario, and so, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> what are you guys saying? I don't know so, if this is, is for the podcast or not. Do you, do you, do you do you have an OHIP card? I have an old school red and white striped health card. Just slowly biodegrading. Slowly have you, biodegrading. Have you used it recently. Uh, last time I went to the hospital was probably like three years ago. And they took it. Yeah, no problem. They didn't even ask me about That's it. That's what the absurd um, injustice is. The red and white OHIP cards mm. are invincible, and you will get absolutely no static for using it. The photo health cards, the day that it expires, they want money up front until you go and get yourself rephotographed and reprocessed that's the fucking racket Mm -hmm. they're trying to make money off of those ids because they don't need they don't need to ever expire yes they don't need to ever fucking expire there's no especially in like what is it three years yeah so three years are you gonna look so different between 23 and 26 i can show you uh, it's totally like three years health card identification photo ever i look like i'm about 400 pounds I look gray. I look. It can't be three years. Mm-hmm. It's like between three and five years. There's no it's way be that at least five. Because I can't remember the last time I. But even even then, how life. different are you going to look in five years? Really, for like the predominant uh, predominant part of your like adult life, you look the same. Look at this no, there's, there's a lot of ridic- it's it's, it's the same it's the same ridiculousness as having. Uh, passports uh passport photos yeah oh once, let me when, get a look at that fat jesse w- health card once you're six months old you need a passport, <laughs> passport photo right yeah what's even happening in this picture I jesse don't know, but i think that the lady that was taking the picture was trolling me i think that she she took like four pictures and she's like that's the worst one let's put that on there <laughs> you you looks a little bit you, self-important yeah because it'd be recent i guess that was uh, just last year you're com- I, I completely like a, white you look like you have red eyes and no lips 
and like you're wearing some kind of like dark hoodie. This looks like a fucking. I'm a thin man, and I have a double chin in that photo. Yeah, you. This looks like a convict picture. <laughs> this looks like you got brought in on fucking like crack selling charges. Yeah, that's it's an alter. It's it's somehow another dimension crossed over into ours, and for a, a glimpse, there was a moment where a parallel version of Jesse, a Jesse that was born under hard times and became some sort of fat, sad. Uh, white trash Jesse. Yeah, white trash. That's white trash this Jesse. Is, this is World of Warcraft Jesse. This oh, God. Okay, real breakdown. <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you imagine? music what's up you're gonna, you're gonna hate me for it but uh there's a new, there's a new 50 cent song <laughs> and how's it go uh it's ju- it just the entire song is just the hook mm-hmm. it's just uh if someone says a line and then 50 cent goes no i'm talking about <laughs> <laughs> for a solid four minutes it's fucking incredible so he's been delegated to just the know what i'm talking about he does eventually say some stuff mostly about selling drugs oh but uh but yeah no he's mostly just making sure you know what he's talking about uh-huh. or what someone else is talking about. who delivers the other part is it a is it a sample or is it just really just it's just, it's it's the whole g unit crew yeah know what i'm talking about <laughs> Yeah, I wonder if it's totally um, typical for hip hop artists to just go through those those transitions where you have your upstart phase, where you're coming in straight off the street and you're basically talking about the things that are happening in your real life. Then you get rich and you write milk the cow and, and write a song about what you're talking about. Clearly, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that is. Yeah, you but, must you must hit an experimental phase at some point, mm-hmm. right? And it, I feel like your the creative input just has to change based on like how much more money and comfort that you've got going on in your life. I mean, when Fifty Cent started rapping, like coming out of being just a criminal who'd been shot a whole bunch of times, and then like that was sort of his thing. Yeah. Now he, he he never talks about that, and mm-hmm. no one ever talks about that because now it's like, oh, Fifty Cent just has like a successful clothing line. He's very very wealthy. Well, that makes a whole lot of sense. Well, when I hear just the rap brags, when you hear Jay Z come on to Kanye's records, and he basically does a cameo where he says, "Why am I even here? I'm a multi billionaire. I don't like any of these people, and I want to go home." And <laughs> he's like, "End of the, I'm out." Right? No, I'm good. Uh, that uh, that's that's totally appropriate for where he's at in his life. Well, and there's the whole there's the whole problem uh, of 
uh, I'm sure when you come into it and it's all about like everything I'm writing about is how tough, you know, much of a badass I am in my time in prison and stuff, getting shot and everyone talks to you about that all the time. Yeah. You kind of start to think, oh, maybe I'm not a very good rapper. Right, right, right. Maybe I just got shot a few times. Mm-hmm. Like I, I won the lottery with the getting shot thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so then you start, you know, like maybe 50 cents in his art phase. He's doing more arty stuff. I feel like there's been a lot of uh, examples of that in like the past 10 years. Even someone like Eminem, who like when he came around into the rap scene, it was just like how controversial and funny he was, was all anyone ever talked about. How like outrageous his videos were and how many people he dissed in his songs and just the outrageous stuff he would say. Then eventually, I think he had heard enough of that, of people <laughs> talking about like how funny he was. And he just started to make really, really conscious, serious stuff. And like anything that I hear of him now is way more put together and way more intellectual and almost never ever touches on that jokey, um, like, bitch, I'm going to kill you. And like just like talking about having sex with trailer park girls and stuff. Yeah, He's over it. You know, he grew out of that. He was an adolescent. <laughs> now he is a man. And he's like, is this all there is? I'm, I'm supposed to be a cultural force. I'm dressing up in a fucking Jason mask and <laughs> jumping around in overalls. And then, uh, I don't know. The other thing that was weird is, you know, it's it's interesting to kind of to to uh, to comment on pulp co- pop culture when you don't know anything about it. Yeah. So I always have like such a surface level relationship with all of the stuff that's massively popular in hip hop. Right. Right. And from my like basic point of view, it seemed like. Wasn't he in a phase where he would um, trash his ex-girlfriend and talk about wanting to kill her, and then he'd get back together with her for like six months, and then they'd break <laughs> up again, and the you whole seem- cycle would ta- start all over again? You seem to know more about it than I do. <laughs> yeah, I you know, know way more <laughs> than Kim? I do. He's always talking sad. about that Kim. And how he's going to kill her. <laughs> that Kim? That he, is he with Lil' Kim? No. Just it, a girl. His girlfriend. Kim. <laughs> just some, Kim. Just some Kim. As far as I know. I... Yeah, it's very, very strange. He's he's a, a bit of an anomaly in general. Uh, there's a great Onion article that is just uh, it, like the headline is like Eminem shocked as his daughter dates someone raised on his music. <laughs> 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 he realizes how terrible it when once his daughter is dating like just a little Eminem. Yeah, I mean, for real, that's that's a weird kind of thing to, to wrap your head around. I wonder if that would completely kill your music if you started being as conscious as that, where you, instead of just channeling what you're going through in your life into a song, you start to be conscious of the people listening to it and trying to make work that's good for people yeah. or that sets a good example. That must be, especially for a hip-hop guy who's from a, a troubled background or whatever, like, yeah. what exactly... Uh, would you do instead you become like a missionary i guess rapping that conscious shit <laughs> i like dave Chappelle's bit where he was talking about how like everybody in the ghetto they got to learn how to play basketball or dance or you know become a stand-up comedian any way to get like out of that learn how yeah. to entertain white people you know that's <laughs> like the the main uh the main goal um because like you you're offered it seems like even the people who do well in certain like inner city neighborhoods, they don't come back and like use their money to build community centers or anything. They just get the fuck out. They go out and they move to like Beverly Hills and they waste all their money on cars and and mansions and things. Yeah. That's the weird. 
Well, that's that's new rich, right? Like mm-hmm. one thing I've been thinking about for years now is about how wealth and and fortune and celebrity in a, in a certain time in history was very contingent on what kind of physical mark you left on the world. Mm-hmm. Like you had to build libraries or hospital wings and like erect statues of yourselves and build these like sprawling manors. Actually, like kind of contribute to the community and make your name synonymous with like philanthropy and like richness. Um, and now we've entered into a phase of wealth accumulation where like no, no <clears throat> rich people build hospital wings. Like you never hear of the like, bombs do in Toronto. They yeah. S- but they spend a lot of but stuff. I, I'm talking about to like the pop culture rich, right? Mm-hmm. You never hear of like Dr. Dre made his fortune and then he opened like six hospital wings. Yeah. He's still young. Yeah. He's mm-hmm. got time. You got to wait until you're on your deathbed or whatever. And then those ideas start to, but that didn't used to you be the that, case. You get that Ebenezer Scrooge thing, right? Where all the ghosts start coming to you and you're like, wait a minute, everybody thinks I'm an asshole. How am I going to rebuild this brand? Yeah. You're like, well, my kids don't even talk to me anymore. I'm going to cut them out of the will, but and I'm going to build a subway system, and the whole Toronto is going to love me for it. All if, of Scarborough. If he became a real big philanthropist, though, they'd probably give him honorary degrees, and then he'd be Dr. Dr. Literally, it's Dr. Dre. <laughs> Double Dr. Dre. I think part of, part of the, the change might have had to do with like wealth taxing. Mm-hmm. Like this, the heritage tax that's that used point. to exist, right? Like that's a good it was like eighty percent or something yeah, like that. Yeah, you lose all the money anyway, so, so you might might as well give it away to where yeah. you want to get your name on a building. We yeah, cracked the code on this. Yeah, <laughs> good job. We, we figured it out. Ninety nine percent. What? Just wealth tax. They really need to heritage tax all wealth because uh-huh. it, it's it's gotten to the point now where families like the Rockefellers and like you know the Trumps. Just gonna like they just have it and they're just gonna hold on to it. Hmm. I'm never gonna do anything. Why um, mothers and fathers would want to give their kids the best kind of possible start, but I don't understand why the kids are that interested in inheriting all oh, of this money. I would do it. You would. It's easy money. <laughs> you don't think that that money would ruin your life? You think that you would be the same guy that you are? Uh, yeah. Hmm. Well, I don't know. What do you mean by the same guy? I think I'd be a richer, more wonderful virgin. <laughs> of the, you don't think it would <laughs> I don't, turn you into a spoiled brat? No, I think. Um, well, I, it's, it, I guess it depends on what kind of uh, money we're talking about. Mm-hmm. I don't. I. I think my relationship to money is such that I I I, I don't think that would happen. Mm-hmm. I think it would just free me, give me more free time mm-hmm. to do what I want to do. Yeah. I don't think I would think about it too much. But, I think because I've been raised as a maritimer, I'm right. afraid to look like I have money. Uh, so I wouldn't be ostentatious about it. I would just like probably keep living the same mm-hmm. life. There'd just be more zeros with in the a bag nice account. and a nicer coffee maker. Except <laughs> That freedom, freedom is very, very inspiring, mm. and I feel like it—it's hard to judge how just how crazy you would go until you are staring down the barrel of like never having to work ever in, again in your life, and also never having to worry about your house or your food. And then, what would you fill your days with? And how would that sense of freedom start to warp your appreciation for different things, and also open your mind up to things that you would have never like? Maybe you just get really into shooting guns. <laughs> or like you know surfing or just something crazy something that's like very money consuming and time consuming that you would have never thought possible in your life just due to the constraints of your current it would be like, really tough on world. somebody who's yeah. impulsive right because if you're getting into you know say you know like you say paragliding becomes your new thing 
and all of a sudden you've got unlimited wealth to buy your own yacht and your own new custom parachutes and hire a pilot i'm gonna bring the best paragliding instructor in north america yeah into lake ontario he's gonna stay here on my dime I'm yeah gonna become the best that's that's <laughs> that's some people's day and why they, not yeah i mean i don't um uh oh i totally lost my train of thought i guess so like, i have to apologize right off the bat just because i still have a young i still have two young kids so I, my brain shuts off oh. often halfway through sentences <laughs> <laughs> What do you th- what do you think causes that? Lack of sleep. Lack of sleep. Okay. Yeah. How they don't sleep? Um, or? the older one does now, but mm-hmm. the younger one, I'm, st- I'm well. Last night I was probably up four times between the two of them. What is what do you think causes that phenomenon? And do you think it's always been that way? Like even back in tribal times, kids wouldn't sleep through the night. Um, well, y- very young ones need to eat. They just need to eat constantly. So they, but and so. Uh, you know, on, on a, uh, he's at the point now where he, he would probably get up once or twice in mm-hmm. a night, depending on when he fell asleep. Because I sleep like 12 hours too, right? So to get up twice is chunks of four hours at a time. Uh, so it's kind of you right. probably get up twice in a 12-hour sleep to like go to the bathroom or get some water. Yeah. I see. Yeah. <laughs> How old are your kids? Four and one. Four and one. Interesting. Four is not such a bad age anymore. Yeah. Like once they can start getting that old, then they become real, oh, he, real people. Right? He's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I know he's very, uh, he's very much a real person and very funny and very smart. But I lost. Uh, I've taken us on this whole other tangent. And I had this very brilliant point. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's retrace let's our rewind steps. Rewind it. And uh, <laughs> we were talking about being rich, parasailing. Oh, I was going to um, say that it's um, it probably has something to do. I've I've I um I worked freelance for years and people often ask me um like I'm either at home writing fiction or even when I I I do work that actually pays money I still do that from home most of the mm-hmm. time and people are often amazed that I can do that given it's not a total financial freedom, but it's that freedom of no one's watching you. When no one's watching you, will you still work? Will you still do the things yeah. that you set out to do? And there, I think there probably are certain people that are are better hardwired to do that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That's why I think I I think I could handle <laughs> lots of money, <laughs> and people if people want to give that to me, then they can do that. But they. Um, uh, but yeah, it probably would be hard on a lot of people. Imagine there was a digital service where you could hire a digital boss and yeah. he's, there's different, like diff- different, uh, character types, but yeah. most of them are like the stereotypical hard ass and they just call you up or they go on the screen and they say like, Hey, what are you doing? You making money yet? Blah, blah, blah. They're hired to give you a hard time and make sure that you're motivated and stuff. Sure. I think this is a slave a master. Yeah. It's kind of like a modification of like those digital pets. Mm-hmm. Or I remember when I was a kid, there was a video game, early video game, where it was just like a guy who lived in your computer, and you had to kind of keep him entertained. It was like pre-Sims, but basically The Sims. And <laughs> and if you ignored him for too long, he came over and started tapping on the screen. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing out there? You know, you're not cleaning my house. <laughs> there's, a, there's actually a game for Dreamcast that's a lot like that. that mm-hmm. It's uh, called Seaman. Oh. Uh-huh. And it's uh, it's narrated by Leonard Nimoy, and, and it's it's presented in the style of In Search of, which uh-huh. was like Leonard Nimoy's like uh, science fiction myth show. He would like debunk the Sasquatch. My favorite episode like, of In Search of is Oak Island. Yeah, the Great Oak. You know the Oak Island stuff from the Maritimes. I would assume. Yeah, it's the is that uh, familiar. Hand of Robin Squires. And they uh, is that that's the thing with the like. 
they dug down seven feet and they found thing and then they pulled up those boards and they dug down another seven feet and they keep doing it yeah they're treasure they're out on a on an island and the rumor was that blackbeard had buried treasure out there and every every layer is booby trapped every layer was booby trapped and then they finally found um some sort of trigger stone uh, 30 or 40 feet into the ground and it had uh, various like runes or pirate markings on it that uh, they couldn't decipher. Yeah. Right. And when they pulled that stone out, um, the next morning they returned to the pit and it had flooded with like 25 feet of water. Uh, and it became, <clears throat> it's, it's unclear now, like, cause there's real legit scientists that have looked at the story and they said, you know what, those logs that you were finding are a natural phenomenon. It's caused by landslides over years and years and how the island was formed and you're all crazy and it makes perfect sense but what's brilliant about the story is um it became a mania right Mm -hmm. like there was treasure hunter after treasure hunter inherited this pit and they came out with like elaborate schemes to be the team that would be able to dig down through the water submerge a little submarine or divers and find the gold down there Mm -hmm. And the whole island ended up being like hollowed out, like a giant quarry trying to dig down to find this yep. fucking treasure. All that really happened? Mm-hmm. Because I often assume that all the stories of people even going to check it out is all made up. Too. It's still it's still going on. I, I checked people the Wikipedia, Wikipedia page uh, just last year, and it was in the hands of some consortium. And they had, like, major mining equipment, and they're still digging this island, getting this giant (laughs) quarry, trying to find gold that probably was never there to begin with. (laughs) There was nothing in Al Capone's vault. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, there was a a brilliant um, book that we read in grade five or six called The Hand of Robin Squires that was basically the prequel to that Oak Island treasure pit where um, the stowaway... It's kind of like a Treasure Island type story, mm-hmm. except Canadian. There's a, a stowaway, and he's hanging out with the pirates and stuff. And they eventually uh, build this this treasure room and the, these traps and the various layers of um, of soil and logs and stuff over the the pit. And um, the protagonist gets his hand lopped off, and it's it's left in the pit. And that ties back to one of the Oak Island urban legends about how they had sent a submersible camera down uh, into the pit and they had seen a like a severed hand down there. And then like immediately the video <laughs> feed was destroyed by like a cloud of silt that came up and disappeared. <laughs> and on the hand was written, not Penny's boat. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really funny to because like it's an interesting thing to think that a pirate back in that time would go through all of that to bury his treasure hundreds of feet yeah, below. What did you do before Banks, banks man? Because no, no one knows that island is even in, in Exactly. Existence. No one knows that island <laughs> exists. And also, why, like, the amount of gold that he could have possibly accumulated could not have been that large. So wouldn't you eventually need to start spending that on something? Why would you want to hide it 100 feet underground? Uh, with, like, yeah, how do you make a withdrawal? Exactly. Like, oh, we're gonna have to take it all. It doesn't make any sense. Can, can you just turn around for a second so I can get my <laughs> gold out? <laughs> from, from take my gold up. Hello. From a, from an uh, Egyptian point of view, it's sort of like when they built tombs and hid gold and like mm-hmm. made traps. 
that makes sense because they were kind of trying to protect a ritual site. It was like part of a ceremony. Mm-hmm. And it was the afterlife. It was the afterlife. You're taking it to the afterlife. Yeah, but you don't need to take a, it out again. A pirate hiding his gold with like numerous booby traps being in the way of it, like completely inaccessible to any mm-hmm. human hands, makes no sense. Well, I don't even know the history of it. Has there been documented cases where they found a stereotypical treasure map and they've dug up actual treasure that was put there hundreds of years ago by a pirate. Yeah, and I like think, how many pirates were there in the past and how many of them actually had buried treasure? I think that the whole idea of a buried treasure map is from Robert Louis Stevenson or something. He just made it up, imagine. I think so. <laughs> I think that's where it comes from. Uh-huh. Pretty sure. And the skull and crossbones and all that stuff. I don't think a lot of the stuff we... We attribute to pirates are real. I've heard the Jolly Roger things. is a real thing. Oh yeah, I've heard it's a real thing, and I because I think there was a This American Life episode on how that evolved okay. over time, and it had to do with real events. But it's so funny that like the farther you go back in history, we forget that there's more people now alive on the planet than all of the people who have ever lived dead. Like six billion people now, there's like less than 6 billion people that have ever lived. And when you start to go deeper and deeper into history, you're talking about like smaller and smaller populations. And you wonder like how many, how many pirates actually had to exist before they made like this huge legacy on history that everybody still talks about. I'm willing to bet real ninjas were there. Were how many real, all of that stuff. I'm willing to bet that a lot of the pirate uh, mythos that exists now is a lot like the way, uh, you know, in Unforgiven, where it's like the whole movie is sort of about, like, Wild West legends and how, like, the winners of the gunfights sort of mm. wrote their own legends. Yeah, that's a good call. I feel like like pirates sort of wrote their own uh, stories of glory. And just think about how clumsy sea Keep fighting... Attacked by my microphone. <laughs> Think, think of how clumsy sea fighting must have had to have been. Oh, ridiculous. Just big cannons and wooden ships just trying to somehow sail around each other against the wind and shoot at one another and board one another. What's like the just, strategy? Well, we got we to gotta fire this lead ball and break their boat so their boat sinks. Or we have to jump onto their boat. <laughs> we, have to, we have to dock onto their boat and go and fight them all hand to hand that's giant blades that's so impractical that's really impractical and clumsy and there's no way that these like epic well thought out sea battles went on it it was definitely just complete luck and chance but there are pirates now yeah but because they have better, they can, they have faster boats. Is that the idea? Faster then? boats, guns, they faster guns. Boats. I think the idea then was that you had a a a, a big lum, lumbrous. I'm gonna make a word up. <laughs> <laughs> These big lumbrous merchant ships with a bunch of people who were just there to sh- to travel across the ocean with them. Yeah, and then all of a sudden a bunch of guys. With peg legs and hooks, <laughs> <laughs> jump onto your ship and go. Ah, you're gonna go. Ah, okay, take it. Have the modern yeah, pirates right? adopted the peg leg and hook thing? I no, <clears throat> they don't have any of cybertronics. That. It's more. It's more like uh, they like fly gang colors and Google tattoos. Glasses. Google glasses. They have really <laughs> fearsome looking tattoos. Like Somalian pirates right. get their face tattooed. Oh, rad! They're like, yeah, and. Yeah, they, I just want to be scary. They did an episode of that that awful Spike show, Deadliest Warrior, and <laughs> Somali pirates, Somali pirates versus, oh, yeah? and they got they got this Canadians. one Somali pirate who was like uh, reformed and had left Somalia, 
and they were like sort of testing his prowess and they put him on a floating platform like a boat and then created waves and had him shoot an AK-47 at targets like across the water on the shore and he was a fucking crack shot on a floating platform. He could hit every target without even thinking about it. Yeah. And so, like, they're... Imagine he couldn't st- shoot straight when he was on, on solid ground. <laughs> He's too used to He's the water. He's all calibrated for the waves. <laughs> but I, I feel like they're, they're probably, like, military men. Mm-hmm. Like, people who have military training who have been disenfranchised well, by their it, country. They talked about it on Joe Rogan's show, and it was kind of a sad story. Like, apparently, the roots of it are... A lot of these guys used to be just merchant um, fishermen. But because of all of the European shipping traffic and the pollution, like these boats just travel through uh, the Somali coast and stuff, and they dump their garbage and, and sewage and plastic and stuff in the water, and it killed all the fish. So these merchant fishermen, their, their fishing stocks collapsed, and the only way they can survive now is to start robbing people. Pick up the, one of the... What's going on with my microphone? Is it... Uh, there I am. Huh. That's weird. Is it at an awkward angle? Just no, to, uh, like, tilt that baby it up. seems okay. Just every once in a while, it sort of kicks off. Yeah. Technical difficulties. <laughs> 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 but yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a, a funny kind of thing. And it's kind of an example of how um, the, the stereotype and the story surrounding something is way more fantastical and interesting than what the original thing probably was. Yeah. So, like, if you were to fast forward or to rewind back to pirate times and actually meet a pirate, it's probably a pretty pretty practical kind of lifestyle. You're like, we're poor as fuck. We're, all we can do is rob the merchant vessels and... Huh? Keep going. You're just peeking. Oh, I'm peeking? Yeah, yeah big time. Does it go down? All these technical difficulties. You better edit these out, Jesse. <laughs> edit that sentence together. Da flow. Um, but yeah, the uh, it, it seems like if you were to go back and meet actual pirates, they would probably be a lot more boring than the legends and stuff have you believe. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, you, you think about like what a peg leg and a hook is in the real world, and it's like, this guy's disabled. <laughs> It's, it's these poor people that are are fashioning different implements in order to get around. And, and would you really be that afraid of a guy who had a peg leg? <laughs> yeah, like kick that you shit could just sweep him. that out under him in a second, and then what's he gonna do? Hop around on one foot and fight you? Arr. It's really, really impractical. They're not as fearsome as like history paints them to be, and I, I feel like a lot of their their folklore comes from the winners of the battle, clumsy. Uh, lucky winners of naval battles who went on to tell their tales in fucking taverns or, just have it spread. Or maybe even the losers of the battles. True, like, yeah. Like, if you got all your stuff robbed, you're not going to be like, yeah, these bunch of guys came in with a knife. Oh, they were 10 feet tall <laughs> and they were made of metal. It was and the dread <laughs> pirate Blackbeard. The robot pirates. Robot pirates. He oh, they're... <laughs> and I didn't pay him off as that's a fair insinuation. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I really, it, if only the world was actually like Goonies, that would be so much cooler. Oh, if there were just hidden treasure all over the place? God damn. Booby traps. Wrestlers. Fucking. There's <laughs> terrible, disfigured, mentally challenged, th- okay. lovable. Here's an interesting challenge for Lou, all of us that artists. Lou Albino the sad thing about modernism, and the sad <laughs> thing about 
<laughs> us moving into the 21st century, we're headed into a future where there's not a whole lot of mysteries left in the world. Like I was talking to my friend uh, Cameron about the idea it like of you like, just made him up. Cameron you know, Thompson. The the Pacific Northwest, right, mm-hmm. still has a bit of mystery to it. Like you fly to BC mm-hmm. and for hours you're just crossing miles and miles of boreal forest mm-hmm. and you're like there's no habitation in there there's areas in that forest that no human has ever been yeah. possibly yeah. and you go like that leaves shadows and that leaves a corner where you can hide something like bigfoot or like hidden mysteries or unexplored territory the antarctic and i feel like the humans, bottom of the ocean we need that right mm-hmm. it's very very stimulating to our imaginations and it gives us like hope and stuff for hidden possibility we need a reason to explore and i feel like as we get further and further into the world and we discover all of the mysteries you start to get into this pessimistic cynical kind of territory where it's like you know what why are we even talking to kids about hidden booby traps and special treasure and all that stuff when it do- it's not real it doesn't exist like i went into the uh, went to bc around christmas time and it was crazy it was like a Lord of the Rings type country, right? These giant snow covered peaks and um, flowing rivers. And it really gets your imagination going. And you say like, oh, there could be like hidden dwarf kingdoms and stuff right behind that waterfall. And then your mind kicks on and you go like, you know what? But there isn't. <laughs> There's just a little forest. There's just uh, a camp. few squirrels. You know what? Maybe a grizzly bear. <laughs> and it's just rocks. Right. You know, there's not even any gold left in that river because somebody's sifted it all away. And I feel like there might be some sort of polygamist uh, commune. That that now we're talking. <laughs> that's in BC. But anyways, it might be an interesting kind of challenge for like the modern artist to say like, what kind of world are the next generation inheriting, and can we do cool things like build treasure vaults and stuff, and bury them so that somebody can have something to discover in the future, and that there's not. A world that's like more boring. Funnily enough, behind. I think that uh, future generations will probably find our old space junk mm-hmm. to be sort of like, oh, where's that? Where's the Voyager probe? Like, mm-hmm. where's all the all the stuff they launched off Earth in the seventies and like just sent out into the that's the solar a system? Idea. Yeah. Because they, they're they're both now like, but I think the both Voyager probes are like just about to leave the solar it left system last like it, summer. Yeah, it yeah. left so. They're out, they're outside there now, and so I I, I feel like there's never going to be anyone else that goes out to find them except for like humans. Eventually, how is, it, how is that not like a national holiday, like a worldwide holiday when the Voyager, Voyager left the the first object to leave human solar system? It's uh, it's sort of strange how it's a bit of a no one knows about it. No one really no one really knows about it, especially uh, in modern ages like. Kids younger than us definitely have no idea what the Voyager program is, mm-hmm. and have no clue that there's been now two, two of them to completely leave our totally. solar system proper. Those two dogs out there, like we, no one knows about them. They shot yeah. dogs into space too. Yeah, the Voyagers. You didn't know. There's a dog on the Voyager. Yeah, both of them. <laughs> Super intelligent dogs. <laughs> it's amazing. No Co- one knows about cosmic it. rays yeah. have made them immortal and mega intelligent. <laughs> Maybe we should tell them uh, about all the monkeys that came back from space. Super intelligent. <laughs> no, I don't think we'll be doing that. <laughs> Simpsons, yeah. <laughs> On that, want to take a first break? 
first little one. How long is it? It's only been like a half hour. Uh, yeah, I know. I, I, I'm trying to I'm trying to get half hour segments going a little more often. Oh, I find these breaks completely disruptive because <laughs> as soon as you get off the mic, you say something brilliant. And then I'm like, OK, that's not on the show. <laughs> I'm sure we've exhausted pirates. We stopped talking very about pirates. At least. Do you need a know. bathroom break? Yeah, and another beer. Yeah. Okay, get a beer. I'll keep talking to Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you guys. Um, I think mysteries keep presenting themselves. Mm. You're worried that we're gonna figure out Earth is the is the problem, right? Because there's always gonna be something. Just... Like they say that there may be what. 80,000 other species in the ocean that we haven't figured out mm-hmm. yet, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, So the ocean is definitely going to be a new thing, and so it leaves still room for Godzilla. Yeah. The very least could be down there somewhere. Mm-hmm. We might awaken the beast. Uh, or Cthulhu. Yeah. <laughs> Dark one. Well, and things coming from outer space and stuff are mm-hmm. still... I mean, that's new, right? Mm-hmm. We're talking about just the last century mm-hmm. of people talking about that. So... Um, I, I think guess you, you make up new mysteries. It's, it's sort of like art and saying everything in art has been done. We've, yeah. all, we've figured it all out. There's something you know? amazing about tactile mm-hmm. um, p- places and things, though. I like the idea that a new generation of treasure hunters can believe that it's possible to still find something. And I like the idea of the call to arms that happens where in order for the future to have like undiscovered places, you got to build it. You know, so who the conspiracy theory about faking the moon landing. Yeah, that's only possible because, you know, it's um, there was the intent or like the there was people back in the day where that would have benefited them, their interests. And there was the technical prowess to, to kind of pull it off. And so it leads right. to like a whole um, generation having these uh, these imagined um, conspiracies and stuff. And I feel like we have a duty to try to mislead the, the next generation into thinking that we were, had crazier lives than they'll imagine that we do just from listening to our podcasts and reading our books and stuff. I wonder, I, I always wonder if that uh, that whole like seed and cell vault thing is actually real. That'll, that'll be an interesting <laughs> mystery. That is a trippy kind of thing. Have you seen I, I that? do know someone who works there. No what? way. Yeah. Isn't it in the middle of the ocean? Yeah. Well, not in, in. Well, I mean, it's on land. There's so, one. Oh, in, is it underwater? You mean? Well, uh, well, it's in. It's just in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Like you know, very Arctic difficult. Circle or Arctic something. Circle. Yeah. I actually, I don't even know if it's uh, if it's Norwegian land. The guy, the guy that I have met is from Norway, um, but I don't know. Is it on Norwegian soil or not? It's not like mainland Norway. It's in some island somewhere. But yeah. I, I don't I actually don't know. Well, they're on the border of the Arctic Circle or something. So yeah. I assumed that it was maybe at the tippity top of the country. Yeah. Right in the no man's land. Did they give you any uh, background on um, what the culture is like surrounding that thing? Because it's very, it's a very apocalyptic kind of scenario. Yeah, we didn't talk about it too much, but he, I mean, he. His main comment was everyone talks about it as being this spooky, like we're collecting all this stuff for like nefarious purposes later kind of mm-hmm. thing. And it says it's, it says it's really way more scientific, just trying to like collect, like, I don't know. He, 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 he made it sound like he, like possibly even a lot of the original interviews with people that were involved with it mm-hmm. made it built it up to I think to get more attention but right. also made it seem brought all the conspiracy theory people in and made it seem like it was some sort of plot it's like right. now we will own all the seeds right, right. 
I feel like I must. I feel like I sent it money. I feel like I sent yeah. that seed ball twenty five dollars <laughs> or something because I fell in for that hook, line, and sinker. I'm like, we have to protect the world seeds. There could be nuclear war at any moment. Well, isn't we'll, it, we'll, it, I don't. I don't know. That, I don't know that you could actually like if if there was say a nuclear war that wiped out the planet and then. 200 years later, I don't know how long you'd have to wait, but say 200 years later, uh, the Earth's survivors travel up to the Arctic right. to find the seed vault and get all the seeds out. Could could you could you really just plant them again and create like could. complex yeah. ecosystems? Dude, there is deserts in the world that only get rain once every 25 years no, and no, then no, they no. blossom. But if you do, like you're like you have all these seeds and you're like, uh, okay, let's throw these ones over here and these ones over here like mm-hmm. like the 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 whole way that the earth formed in the first place is all these sort of just like weird coincidence accidents right. things. If you went as a person walked around and were like, this is where the begonias <laughs> are going to live with the cactus and some, uh, the zucchini. I'm okay. sure and here we're going to throw this stuff. Like probably a lot of it's just going to die because they don't work together. Wouldn't you think that's an archival project of that scale would say where to plant them? It, it would have information about, it wouldn't just be like, yeah, but it's just a, just a drawer that says Oak tree. <laughs> And you like pull the oak tree seeds out, and you're like, "Ah, oh, what are these?" No, but seriously, you're talking about after your nuclear war. Uh-huh. Yeah. Who knows what the soil is like? You're like a, just a dude. You're yeah. The, you're the, you're the one of a hundred. <laughs> I love my little future scenario. You're one of a hundred people who've survived. Only one hundred. Oh, we're know. fucked. I don't know. Say a million <laughs> people. You're one of a million people who survived, and. I don't know. I guess you're assuming that one of those million people is some kind of a scientist and has the stuff to test the soil. Because mm-hmm. whatever information you put with the seed, it's not going to say, like, this goes in Arizona. Right. Maybe right? they're building the dirt vault. And there'd be fucking, there'd be a little bit <laughs> of. Maybe they just got a big old dirt vault with like 12 yeah. foot concrete walls to protect from nuclear blasts and just all the dirt stays nice yeah. and fresh. You can put a layer of topsoil <laughs> all over the whole earth. I wonder if there'd be a bit of prejudice too on the, the part of the librarians that are putting the seed vault together. Like there's really choice spots for apple trees and mango yeah. trees and other things that give you food. And sure. then elsewhere in the that bat, at the fucking back of the vault, there's like ragweed, like dandelion. Um, dandelion. <laughs> well, how really how you assign it like a numbering system, like the whole uh-huh. Dewey Decimal, and then everything else, like but is uh, it libraries? You you do put weight on your classifications, right? From what I've heard now too is that the idea has expanded beyond just seed vault too. Is that they're tr- they're trying to make a gene vault mm. that will just have the the DNA. Of all the animals that we know of, especially mm-hmm. the ones that we like eat, mm-hmm. and of all like humans, different kinds of humans, right. we just get all the DNA together the first and steps like towards the Star Trek replicator yeah. having some sort of like gene sequencing machine that can like write DNA. Yeah. Then all you would need is the different genetic codes of the species in a, a computer system, and you could just print out the DNA that you need. That'd yeah. be trippy. 3D printers are the the very humble beginnings of something that's going to be like something what you're talking about. Where they they're already trying to invent ways to like kind of well they they're printing organs now aren't they they're like mm-hmm. actually printing out custom organs and like veins yeah it's very rudimentary like basically they load different heart cells or different stem cells into um, a syringe and it's computer guided and it it knits the the cells around a lattice or some sort of substrate that can be consumed 
or um, that biodegrade. New, that silk, that new medical silk mm-hmm. that they've been using. Yeah. And they can use it to, to stitch together enough tissue that you can implant it in a body and, and, um, and replace it like form, a... And it'll connect. Yeah, because it's made from your own stem cells, right? It's right. it's it's the equivalent to doing like a, a skin transplant or, or whatever. Um, but yeah, that's a that's trippy. Um, did you did you ever hear that? I think at Radio Lab did an episode on an equivalent uh, sci-fi vault, but it was for uh, America's nuclear waste. And and what they'll do with that in the future? Well, what? they're building. They had like a design project to figure out what kind of um, vault they could build that would last ten thousand years, and considering um, the idea that. In 10,000 years, not a stitch of the culture or the language is going to still exist. Like, all of our words will Mm -hmm. have evolved into other things. How do you put signage or a story on the front of a 10,000-year-old vault to warn people that there's toxic poison inside? Yeah. And they were trying to figure out ways that were culturally universal to warn people to stay out of something. Skulls and X's. The problem is, like, when you... Say, like, you were headed into the pyramids and you saw all sorts of, like, sharpened spikes that were trying to keep you out of the room and you saw skulls and warnings of danger. Yeah, you'd be treasure! You'd be like, there's something <laughs> provocative inside here that we need to get at because somebody doesn't want us in that room. Mm. Let's, let's see what's going right. on in there. Just uh, with the technology we have now, just make giant prints of people's irradiated bodies and, like, vials of just, like, radioactive material and just... Post them up everywhere. Just big mm-hmm. posters of people being irradiated by nuclear material. Or you could do like one of those uh, Chinese clay warrior type of things where you just have 10,000 rows deep of r- irradiated human yeah. skeletons. And we, you're like, wait a just, minute. Because we just left those nucleus. guys alone. <laughs> like, oh, look at all these, skin, <laughs> all these statues. It belongs uh, in a museum. Oh, uh, yes. It's cultural importance. Yeah. Hey, look, something that something from history. Let's dig it up and put it in a building. <laughs> Let's remove it from its natural place in history. Well, I mean, you talk about the DNA, like you know, animal DNA. Mm-hmm. Like, really, what are you, you going to have instructions on how? Like, what? How do you just? Is it just a thing again, like a little box, and you open up the bear box, and all of a sudden the the DNA of the bear just oh to shit, bubble. bears suck. Oh, it's bears. You never should have woken it up. <laughs> That's it froth, your long hibernation ends now. Interesting. Cola, cola, uh, polar like, bear. This is a good movie, I think. Interesting <laughs> concept. How would uh, how would humanity restructure the food chain if it had the chance? Mm. If we were like scientifically able to like, oh, we just have the genes of all these animals, and we figure out like, ah, we don't really need that one. Like, what are what could our flies do in us? We just write them off. They're the world's garbage men. They're the world's garbage men. Clean up all them carcasses. Right? Are there any? Are there any animals that you could safely remove from the food chain? To like, if you're repropagating Earth, say all the that, same animals, but what could you take out of it? That's what I'm saying about the plants and everything else too. Is like there's this super complex system that happened by accident that I don't think you could do if you mm-hmm. even like no matter how much detail you had written down I don't think you could yeah yeah, yeah. It. it's too circumstantial referring, well even to copy it anyway I suppose you could probably create something else mm-hmm. but you need some sort of semi-stability right. right very sterile environments that's I think that's that's something that Asimov wrote about a lot um, he has these uh, these two books, the uh, the Naked Sun and Caves of Steel, mm-hmm. and they're they're about when humanity sort of like pr- 
propagates the rest of the planets of the solar system. And uh, they create on all these other planets because not many people wanted to leave Earth. They create really, really sparse communities. Yeah. And because there's nothing else on the planets, they're very sterile. It's just oxygen. Just like oxygen and people. And there's like nothing else. And they live, live super, super far away from one another. And they only ever talk to each other through like holograms and videos. That's interesting. And they, they develop a sort of weird claustrophobia where they need like big, wide open spaces and like lots of just emptiness. Mm. Whereas the humans who stayed on Earth all live in just crazy compact cities yeah. where there's like 11 billion people in some the space size of New York mm-hmm. all built straight up. I get my wide open spaces by watching a glowing rectangle. And they, yeah, they don't like they don't like the 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 idea of like a a real sun. They can't deal with outside. If they're outside of the city, they start to get. Um, agoraphobic the opposite yeah. ah. where they become terrified of open spaces and they mm-hmm. want the crammed comfort My of like a city like that. He, he's agoraphobic he's never left new york city i think a lot of people in new york city are like that I think yeah. it's probably got to be one of the like it's probably got to be the only city in north america that's like that that people yeah. want that that have a huge population that never leaves. And when they leave, they're just like, oh my God. So densely populated yeah. and built up. One of the first places to be built up so drastically, yeah. right? So He came to visit. Like, so my, my aunt went down there. I guess it must have been in the late, must be in the 70s, early 70s or something like that. And they met and, and he would have come back to meet my grandparents at some point. But that was the only time he ever came up. Oh, it must have been early seventies because I met him. So I would have been, yeah. So it's it's sometime in the seventies. I feel like um, a good callback to um, earlier is that uh, you can imagine like somebody who can't handle working freelance. They have that same kind of fear of of open spaces or yeah. like a lack of structure. Because yeah. you think of like New York, the rat race. Mm-hmm. Everybody's constantly wheeling and dealing, trying to stay alive, trying to stay afloat, trying to pay that huge rent. You get off into the, the boonies and suddenly you start to shake. You're like, what? what do I do? I got to fill every moment. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. it's true. It's a it's an interesting thing about like really densely packed cities and like productivity and just the, the mentality of like never leaving that city, getting sort of agoraphobia, but also xenophobia. Like you start becoming like a... F- afraid and judgmental about the things outside of your city you're so like confident in the i think people in toronto get it too where we're so so into ourselves and into what toronto is representing over all of the other like smaller cities in ontario mm-hmm. that we start to sort of like push them out of our minds and mm-hmm. write them off as if it's like you know every other city is just sort of like the boonies and like full of rednecks uh-huh. and Toronto. I, I mean, like I can see why that some of Canada sort of looks at Toronto as a bunch of pretentious assholes. Cause maybe we are some of and Canada. that's okay. Okay. All of Canada thinks that Toronto is pretentious assholes and the world needs hillbillies out in yeah. the boonies. We need both. <laughs> both should be proud. Fuck um, you. I found it ins- that inspiring that Isomoff idea about the different planets and the different cultures that would de- uh, form on them. Yeah. Um, Smart guy. But the thing that was that um, it reminds me of is that um, Alan Moore was talking about human propensity to believe that anything is possible with a machine. Like it's a, it seems to be a deep part of our cultural DNA that we imagine there'll always be a future tool that will enable anything. Like they, the distances between stars are ridiculously far, 
but we've already wrapped our heads around the idea that eventually we'll figure out some sort of warp technology to be able to warp space and time and project us into these unimaginably far distances. And why not? And why not? Well, it's a fun thought experiment, but it's kind of ridiculous. Well, it's, it's no more ridiculous than the replicators, and you talked about that. This is true. Like it's a well, real what thing. I was going to say is, like, I believe that the replication technology and being able to write DNA and stuff is more pragmatic. And I was imagining like a sci-fi scenario where if you could make contact with instead of another planet, but maybe another dimension. Or another planet where um, there was intelligent life and you could create a data link between the two. Mm. It'd be fascinating to figure out a way to um, have conversations with other places where instead of going and visiting that planet, you just build whatever they have that you want to see here based on their instructions. So, like, you can download the DNA for the animals that they have there that you think might be cool to see. Yeah, just print them out. That is exactly a, a Star Trek to the Next Generation episode. I think that's probably an Asimov book, too. Dude, there, there's, a, that's a great idea. there's a species living at the center of the Milky Way who are, like, great explorers, but they never, ever leave home. Mm-hmm. They just send computers out to reprogram ships to bring people to them so that they can learn all about them and then they send them home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all just about like, oh, we, we don't want to have to travel. We'll just bring everything here to us and mm-hmm. then replicate it at our will. And isn't that sort of the premise of that last uh, Ridley Scott movie? The one that's like prequel to Alien, but Prometheus. it wasn't Prometheus. Prometheus yeah. Horrible movie. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not the only one, right? It was boring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, um, I am I'm al- also one who thinks that every alien movie except the original is completely uh, unwatchable uh, bad. Number, f- number four, though, it's Janae. It was creative. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> the, the whole the whole like uh I think it clone, saying, but it's the clone thing and like the alien human hybrid bullshit was just like meh <laughs> too much it, they lost they lost sight of what the original movie was about is that the yeah. one where the alien gets sucked through the the tiny little hole in the ship I the skin the skin don't. colored alien i don't that's really pretty remember sick. is that three or four i think that was four is it we talked about it on the podcast too. I think there was an alternate ending where they go back to Earth and there's all sorts of Ripley alien hybrid monster. Oh, and it's, aliens not, it's not like back on giant. Earth though, is it? I thought it was back on Earth, and Isn't they, like, they find a queen Ripley these, like, that has a giant test abdomen. tubes and stuff, mm-hmm. right? I thought that was just on the wherever they were. I don't remember where they were in that one, but it's got you know it's got dude from uh, Hellboy in it, and it's got Ron uh, yeah, Ron Perlman's in mm-hmm. it, and it's, it's good. Nice. Uh, we should all get together, obviously, and do Any, a uh, anything with Ron an Perlman. Alien Four podcast. Anything with Ron Perlman, I think, is just good. I'll give it. An, I'll voice. give it. I'll give it another chance. And that French guy, whatever the French guy is, who's in all the Genet movies, is that the professional dude? Is he in that movie? The guy who oh, looks yeah, like yeah. the guy who looks like the guy that you put the, the the old guy that you put pool balls in his mouth. That picture, you know, what I'm talking about. Oh, he's an actor, <laughs> Don Rickles. <laughs> <laughs> Zing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> aliens. End scene. I had to. I I didn't mind when you started going on that tangent about talking about your kids. Because, uh, <laughs> I have a lot of I have a lot of questions. I never. I'm kind of. Uh, Jesse's in baby mode. I'm I think. in baby mode, and I don't know any happy dads. And like, the thing that like bums me out about it is I'm surrounded by Gen X and older dudes that do nothing about. They do nothing other than like complain about their wives 
and complain about in that kind of like Al Bundy type of way. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, you, you guys realize that this is your life you're talking about. <laughs> you made these choices and you sound like a loser for complaining about yeah. those those things. And I kind of wanted to hear, like, because you seem to have, um, I'd expect you to have, like, a more kind of, like, psychedelic and interesting <laughs> kind of way of, like, describing how fucking cool and interesting it must be to have a, a person that shares, like, some of your DNA be able to, like, slowly develop um, into, like, a fully formed human person, you know, like a human being, and, like, be able to... Like, what's the trippy side of that? I almost feel like it, it seems every dad I've met, it's there's not a lot of time to think about that. As he <laughs> said, he's not getting much sleep. Mm-hmm. He hasn't had a whole lot of time to cope with the reality of having a miniature human. Uh, no, I think I have. It's yeah? a very imprecise question, though. I'm not really sure even how to answer it, like where to begin. Mm-hmm. It's uh, because it's it's super complicated, too. It's not like... Um, I'm not going to remember the quote, but it's it's the way that I often talk about like novels is that to try to sum up something like a novel in a sentence is the is you can't do it because it's the reason why you wrote the novel in the first place, right? right. Like you needed 120,000 words mm-hmm. just to get the idea down, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but the uh, it's. Uh, wonderful i don't know some parenting up in three <laughs> words now <laughs> the, it, the the freaky thing about i think my oldest son is that he's such a clone of me mm-hmm. and that the pictures uh like pictures of me at the same age where I, where we look identical yeah my there's, sister's no, there's, that way. there's nothing like we're so similar and and then the uh but it must be something to do with personality as well because the my younger son we think of as looking totally different. Right. And yet we were home and uh, visiting my parents and we saw some pictures of my first son at the same age and we're like, whoa, they look exactly the same. Mm -hmm. How come we thought even at that age that he was identical to me and that my second son... Um, you know, still looks like me but has a lot more of my wife in him? Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I don't know, it's a really fascinating thing to just go through this... um, to watch uh, and experience someone else learning stuff, right? It's it's yeah. I don't know. It's it's uh, it's uh, it, no. It's overwhelming, and mm-hmm. it's like all, all these like stereotypes. It like, is really wonderful to watch like a kid sort of absorb information, yeah. and the 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 sort of wonderment in their eyes as they look around at stuff, yeah, and like. I hate seeing when parents are really like not engaging their kids. Like it's so refreshing whenever I meet a parent who like is answering all their kids' questions because like they just they're asking them for the a reason. Well, they're asking and, for a reason, and right? They ask like, questions that are impossible to answer a lot. Of right? Time. Like it's like, oh shit, yeah. I never, <laughs> I never really. How do I, how do I explain that in terms that you're gonna understand? But how am I gonna explain it in terms that I'm gonna understand? Right. Right. It's like, oh yeah, the, like most of this stuff doesn't really make sense. Mm-hmm. So how do you like get this idea across? How do you explain something like humor? How do you like communicate <laughs> that kind of stuff? And yet somehow he's coming back to me with very similar, like he's picking up my own little idiosyncrasies and and all that kind of humor stuff and delivering it right back and i'm like oh 
that's funny that's really funny and only because probably he's echoing me somehow like not mm-hmm. not, not not like word for word which i think you know kids do at an early age mm-hmm. but now that he's four he'll like throw like i the other day i was like uh i'm like um going to my my parents my parents just had their 50th wedding anniversary and we were going to this party um and on the way i'm like oh i gotta go to the liquor store and he's like you mean licorice store, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, awesome. Like, just wordplay like that is really, like, you can't explain it, really. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, you take a word and you just put, you change it. Right. You, pre- you pretend you heard something else, right? Son, I'm going to teach you about innuendo. Yeah, and somehow he's picked it up already that he can go, like, <laughs> licorice, licorice store. store. And, yeah, it's good. And having no idea what liquor is. No. It's he no, kind of thinks maybe deep down that you're needing to stop off for, maybe. like, a pack of licorice. I don't think I, I can't. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I must have at some point, but I don't think I've. I may have never said the word liquor in front. Liquor is a weird word to say. It's Yeah, booze or beer or wine. Like, you or usually call like, it by its actual, like, yeah, or whatever. If I'm drinking something, he'll be like, what's that? And I'm like, ah, it's a grown-up drink. Grown-up drink. You know, it's a a daddy drink, you know? (laughs) It's like when I hear people talk about, um, you know, like brown pops. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? (laughs) Like all these like weird things that you do so that you don't tell your kids the real words. And so usually like when he asks me what something is, I'm like, oh, it's beer. Uh Uh-huh. Grown-ups like beer. Kids, My friend, kids uh, don't usually like beer. I've let I, I you know give them a little taste. Like, oh, I don't like that. So he knows stuff. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe I've taught him things that I like. He won't like. Right. But, um. But like he he has it in his mind that like beer and coffee. Um. And I'm trying to think what else. But there's things that he's like. Those are for grown-ups. Mm-hmm. And I know I don't like them. Mm-hmm. And we when we were we we when we went to Norway recently. Um. One of the funniest parts was one night we were out and there was a micro, um, uh, uh, like a brewery in, in Reykjavik. We went to Iceland afterwards and um, I'd heard about it and I'm like, I really want to go there. And we were out, the, all four of us, and, and I'm like, oh, I just want to get there and just have a beer. Can I go? Ida <laughs> and I will go. And we, we arrived there and then all of a sudden I was like, oh. I don't have any money. All I have is this credit card. <laughs> what if they don't take money? And we're in the line, and I'm like with my four-year-old going, I don't know if they're going to take money. I'm like pouring <laughs> all this out on him. And he's like, Daddy, I think they're going to do it. Like not knowing what money is probably, not knowing any of these things. sensing. And we get up there, and I go, of course, the guy's like, dude, it's Iceland. Like we take credit card for everything. I don't think we even have money anymore. Right. And tourists. um. And at the end of the trip, like a week later, I'm like, what's your favorite part of the trip? He's like, that part when we went out of that bar and they took your credit card and you got your beer. (laughs) (laughs) That was the best part. The Uh perfect wingman. Yeah. He's just like, yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to see you get I just your wanted beer. To see, I just wanted to see you happy. My I knew you wanted that <laughs> brew, buddy. <laughs> but he knows that the, like that that um, that beer is a particular thing for me, and he's he's like, that, I don't know in that really particular weird. situation, you really wanted it. Yeah, I guess <laughs> you're kind of worried. Yeah. Yeah, uh, my friend, uh, my friend Sean made a, a strict rule that. There was no baby talk allowed around yeah, his we, daughter. I, oh, I hate that. And because, and he had a really good point. Like, and this was totally intuitive. He's like, the reason kids talk like children is because we deliberately teach them different words 
for everything yeah. in the world. You're like, those aren't your toes. They're your toesies. <laughs> And your your foo foos and yeah. your boo and you talk like a little baby to them and then they learn baby talk. My yeah. oldest brother was the same thing. He never he he would bark at people if they tried to talk baby talk to his kids. He'd be like, "No, talk to them like humans." And honestly, I I can say for sure they're like eight and six now. Mm-hmm. It it's obvious mm-hmm. in their in the terms of their like vocabulary development. They sure. they they sound a lot older than they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it's like. It's. I don't know whether or not like it's a necessary thing. Like I understand why someone would want to do it, but yeah, they definitely they're definitely on track to feeling out of touch with people their age. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that he found was that there was a link between vocabular uh, maturity and behavioral maturity. Because a kid that can express themselves and say to another kid, you're making me angry, go away, sure. or tell the teacher that that kid is, is making fun of my shirt and I don't want to be around them, they're less likely to act violent, you know, because you get frustrated when people aren't understanding what you want and it makes you want to force them into doing your will other ways. Sure. Right? That makes yeah. Sense. Yeah, it's trippy. He also taught the kid how to do a rear naked choke, which is uh, <laughs> the other side of the coin. <laughs> they called they called Sean into the, the school and they said, you know, she assaulted another student. He's like, well, did you ask her why she did it? And then they asked Haley and she's like, he was he stole my pencil and I asked him three times to give it back and he wouldn't. So I choked him out <laughs> and took the pencil <laughs> And then Sean was like, "Isn't that reasonable? Isn't that re- this? Isn't that a reasonable thing to do?" He asked her three times. He asked the teacher. They wouldn't do anything about it. She's got a sense of justice. She choked him out. <laughs> choked that motherfucker out. And took the pencil back. Yeah. Once you've asked the teacher, I don't know what you do after that. Here, here's a uh, something. The memory was just jogged and thinking mm-hmm. about being th- like three or four and those sort of like weird things you do when you're absorbing your environment. Mm-hmm. My brother's being so much older than I am. Uh, you know, like a 10 plus years older than I am. Uh, my first or second day of kindergarten, like the first time going to school, was right around the same time that my brother was obsessed with World War II mm-hmm. and was building like Lego Nazi tanks. And also the first video game that I ever played was like Wolfenstein 3D. <laughs> so it was like killing Nazis and like Hitler is a boss in that game where he's walking around. I would watch my brothers play all the time and mm-hmm. it, Hitler's in like a big robot suit with a bunch of Gatling guns. So I don't obviously remember this, but I do remember my parents recalling this story over and over and over. First, second day of kindergarten, I stood on a table and gave a, a in heartened salute. No, no, an in heartened speech about how Hitler was a scary man in a robot suit with four <laughs> chain guns <laughs> and like all about World War II and was just like telling all these other four-year-olds. And the teachers were like, he's got it. He, he managed to convey a very complicated world issue no, to children. No, it was that uh, I went to a Catholic school, so all the teachers were like, oh dear God, what's going on at home? And they never treated me with or my parents with any respect after that. It uh-huh. was like a, right off the bat because I had absor- accidentally absorbed 
this weird picture of World War II and of Nazism mm-hmm. at four the, in, in, in a time where there's no way I could have understood what I was even seeing. Yeah. And then I went and just instinctively started spewing it to the mm-hmm. other kids and how scary that must have been to like a Catholic school teacher. Right. Like, oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. How yeah, does, how does he know get, about Hitler? I'm going to get fired. <laughs> I'm, I'm so <laughs> fucking fired after this. Yeah. It was around Halloween, and I was probably 10 years old, and one of my neighborhood friends was over, and we had just started hanging out, so he would enthusiastically kind of report different things that he saw in my house, and I had an older brother that's 12 years, 10 years older than me, so he's about 20, and he's doing more like older 20-year-old Halloween stuff, and he decided to... what is that? You know, when you start drinking and, and wearing more mature costumes and doing more kind of like going scary to Halloween. I think at 20, you just have stopped, no? No, no, no. You don't get, you go, you have crazier parties. College Halloween party. College That's Halloween what he's party. saying. Sexy yeah. Halloween. All uh, right. And so anyways, he had, um, he had constructed a voodoo doll as part of his Halloween costume, um, which consisted of kind of like, it had a skull face and it had some sort of like plastic blade sticking out of its chest and it was on a necklace so you could like hang it around your neck anyways this was up in my house because tis the season right and i guess my friend reported back to his evangelical christian mother that we had this voodoo doll hanging up in the house and she got concerned enough that she uh, took us all me and my brother and sister on a field trip to the church and we had to watch this this uh this Christian movie about like um you know abandoning like false idols and <laughs> other religions wow. and things like that and finding Jesus Christ and we were just sitting in this heavily patchouli'd atmosphere listening to all of these people sing and play acoustic guitar and stuff very confused as to like why we were brought to this place by our neighborhood moms our neighborhood friends moms whatever like church and group yeah church group and then she she sprung it on us on the way home that she was concerned we were uh practicing voodoo in the house and even at <laughs> 10 years old it was one of the first instances where i was like even though i'm a kid i think i might be smarter than the adult <laughs> who's talking to me you fucking idiot are yeah. you serious and we were like you realize that it's halloween right and that may have been a toy <clears throat> hanging up in the house. I think not I, a real voodoo doll. Like, on what planet do you think that people actually are practicing voodoo in on Barton Street in Hamilton? That fucking idiotic Christian planet where a lot of people live. That's. I feel like that is actually for some some hardcore like Christians and Catholics. The worldview. They sort of fear that sort of. Uh, black magic and like satanist do worship think, do you think that they picketed uh pet cemetery when it came out <laughs> pet cemetery is good story here, here's an interesting here's an interesting thought i don't know if you saw it was a couple months ago um there was a sailor an african sailor who who there was a boat capsized and sunk to the bottom of, of the ocean no oh, and he was found, he, found he, in he, it. he survived there was an, a little air pocket in the the boat and so he sat in the salt water with this little air pocket for like two days until finally divers came down to recover the wreckage 
came in and found him alive, and then they had to decompress him for like 72 hours before they brought him up to the surface. So just like completely horrifying experience where he thought he was going to die. He was at the bottom of the ocean. All of his friends were dead and floating around him. And he's like rapidly running out of oxygen. He goes back. I forget where he's from. I want to say he's uh, he's from like Sierra Leone. But I can't remember. But he, he went, oh, I think maybe Nigeria. I can't remember. But he mm-hmm. went home and there was like a Catholic church in his town, which was basically the centerpiece of the town. And he went to the church, and they had decided in his absence that the only reason for his survival could have been that he was practicing black magic, and that he should have died just like everybody else on that ship. And because wow. he was a very, they exiled him from the town. Wow. They told him to leave, and he was a very religious man. So he's just gone through this crazy ordeal, ordeal wow. where he was at the bottom of the ocean dying and then he comes home and all he needs is comfort and love and his church are just like get out of here you're practicing black magic he was in how the belly you, of the whale how do you end up like how do you make that leap I wonder mm-hmm. like cause uh, to me I would think it's like oh it, you know in, in that community wouldn't it be more likely to go like oh God chose you to survive right for something greater yeah here's all our money <laughs> don't go crazy yeah that like, actually do what you want with your life that's kind of the more like North American like evangelical Christian knee-jerk reaction of like oh you must have been saved for like a great purpose but yeah. I guess the superstitious nature of you know the the missionary style Christianity that was spread into Africa and that like grasped a lot of these smaller African tribes and took over their lives, maybe absorb some of their like superstitious nature about like the, the origin of Africa and like black magic and voodoo. And so now they have like their own unique brand of Christianity that is both like positive about Jesus, but also very, very fearful of like African black magic. Right. And they just fucking exile them from the town. And I don't know anything about voodoo, but it seems like the idea of resurrecting the dead is is kind of tied to it somehow. So maybe yeah, the the superstition is that he was dead down in that boat, and somehow he came back. Oh, he's not himself anymore. Maybe maybe they maybe they had a funeral already. Maybe that's the thing is that they were they had already internalized his death and so would him come Send back after that. It complicated the grieving process Maybe. for him to come back mm-hmm. alive where they're like, oh, they'd all like kind of given him up to the, the greater good yeah. and he came back a fucking shell of Can a man. Can you imagine the, the transcendence that would happen if it was you down at the bottom of the ocean? Because you would, like you were saying, you'd freak out for the first while, but then eventually the darkness and then the quiet that you'd have down there. Yeah. And the time to meditate on it, you'd kind of, I feel like you'd reach a state of grace, like you'd transcend after a while and start to go somewhere else. Like well, yeah, you're like, I'm going to die anyway. Mm-hmm. Then. But I, I don't know. I wonder, because you probably would be freaking out the whole time too and wondering as, as in all, I mean, the whole, I think the whole uh, um, process of life is always to have at least two decisions mm-hmm. and to always doubt which one is like yeah. the one that you're going to make is the right one. Right. What are you going to like try to well, as humans, which is probably uh, the thing that separates us from, from all other animals is that we can, we, we project mm-hmm. what our decisions are going to be in the future. Mm-hmm. And so for him to be down there, he's probably the whole time just like, like a computer, just like, okay, if I just go now, 
like I don't know how far under the ocean I am. Right. If I <laughs> if I just for it. go down under the water right now and try to swim to the top, can I make it to the top? No. Are there going to be sharks? Uh-huh. Are there going to be squid? Squid. And also being <laughs> down there, Godzilla. He's down there a few days. So he's the hunger, right? Like yeah. he started just being like, oh, and also the there's an inevitable tragedy of having to sit in a watery room with a bunch of corpses. Yeah. The corpses are floating around in the water and like you got to think he's sitting in this air bubble. They're like brushing up against him and there's that mental connection of like everything that's brushing up against him under the waves is like part of a person he used to know. Right. He's the last one mm-hmm. and he's in this room of his friends just floating around in complete nothingness. When is that movie coming? I guarantee that will be at least a made-for-TV movie, if oh, not an sure. actual movie. Because it's like the one where the, the the plane crashes into the mountain and they all eat each eat other. Eat each other uh, alive. alive. Yeah, or the alive. James Franco 100 and whatever 100, hours. 100, oh, yeah. 47? 147 hours. The cave one when he's mm-hmm. like locked yeah. in Yeah, like that kind of a story where Hardcore. you're sure you're going to die. Or Life of Pi. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Isn't yeah. that basically the same thing? Yep, yep. You're Very stuck on a scenario. boat with a tiger who's going to kill because you. Because I think it would be a psychedelic experience. It would turn in, uh, It would be a lot like a, an immersion tank. Complete darkness, salt water. You're floating there. Your consciousness can go anywhere but there because you want to ignore the dire situation and the bodies floating around. Yeah. Um, you probably would do a lot of reflection on where you've been, would you know what the, you hope to do. Would you know, uh, this is, I'm not sure this conversation is going anywhere, but would you know the bodies were there? I yeah, think you would, I, but yeah. I don't. I don't know. It's total if, darkness. I think right? that in a Vonnegut like, type of way, you'd get used to them pretty yeah. quickly. I yeah, mean, it, they're, it's just you know they they died. You know they're not going to come and grab you. Yeah, sad uh, sad scenario. Yeah. Oh, and, and to to be the divers to go down and find that guy because he they were they were like oh it's a body the, they're like the oh ship. it's a body it's a body and then the hand reaches yeah. out and grabs him <laughs> and he's like oh Jesus Christ. <laughs> I have found the actual abyss, and I need to get out of here. And imagine being a cynical rescue worker where you're just like, fuck, everybody's dead already. Let's just play cards and relax. And meanwhile, there's probably a keener on board that's like, we ha- cannot give up hope. We've got to get down. We've got to find that boat. There might be somebody aboard. You know, imagine the conversation afterwards where you're like, told you so. I fucking told you, told man. You so. This is a zombie down there. He's alive. This is totally a great movie, Oh, I, it is actually pretty incredible. No matter how, we, like we've already we've already plotted out your. Next why are two we novels, making a Chris podcast? Eaton. Why yeah. aren't we scripting a movie right now? That's we are. Great. We're brainstorming. Copyright this movie. Copyright patented. That poor zombie's <laughs> story. He comes back to Earth. He gets excommunicated from his church, and then somebody steals his life story and turns it into a movie. It's it all, give it, how do you copyright a podcast? You just like you just keep saying. Everything See in Canadian circle? law, everything you create has automatic copyright. In yeah. Canada? Yeah. Yes. But then anybody like... But are you, do you really think... Somalian pirates could be making a movie right Do you really now? think you're the first person to think, oh, that's an amazing movie? <laughs> like, <laughs> as soon as they saw that news story of like, yeah. oh, man sur- man rescued from ship at bottom of the ocean. I, I think, yeah. Be like, yeah, that's I a think fucking once movie. It, once it's real life, it, it's got to be, it must be a free game, right? Titanic 2. Yeah. <laughs> to the surface. <laughs> we'll adapt it to Titanic 2, where they find one survivor 200 years later on board the wreckage of the Titanic. Leo. <gasps> DiCaprio. DiCaprio yeah. is back. 
They, they're, that is uh, actually a, a mock-up trailer. Someone did like Titanic to the surface, oh, yeah. and it's all cut together from other Leo movies. It's about him like being dug up in a block of ice, kind of Encino <laughs> Man style, and then, then <laughs> released back into the world. And his like marveling at like how m- how much has changed. He's a great That's drawer. Amazing. We need to save him. <laughs> There's that in the future we're gonna want more artists. I think uh-huh. we don't have enough now. Oh yeah, <laughs> Kate's no. not showing those bosoms anymore <laughs> in movies. We gotta start yeah. drawing facsimiles. How many? How many people? How many people just watched that movie for that? For the boobs? For the boobs? It was quite a thrill uh, being like thirteen or whatever. You know what I? I I've never seen Titanic. Titanic? Really. Oh man, you probably should watch it. <laughs> For a PG <laughs> movie, it's one of the few PG movies that has uh, frontal nudity in it. And it's uh, it's tasteful, but it's, it's also still got a, a thrill if you're a kid. My favorite scene, which far goes above any of the sexual scenes, and uh, if you get the VHS copy of this, you can basically just skip directly to the scene by putting the second tape in. I remember this as a kid. <laughs> the second the second tape starts right about the the time the ship starts going down and breaks in half. And the propeller, and the is, thing goes up in the air, and uh, uh, there's this great scene where a guy falls off of the top of the ship, and then it's just a top-down shot of him falling. Yeah, and he then spins he spins around, he, and he hits the railing. He hits the propeller, oh. and it goes and dong. It goes dong, and, it's, <laughs> and the propeller starts spinning a little bit, and he fucking cartwheels off into the water. Oh, after. at that point, the propeller's not going. No, it, no, it's totally dead. And then he hits the side of it and goes bong and starts spinning a little bit. And then he cartwheels perfectly off into the water. I have to say, it's you're not the only person that's told me that that was their favorite shot. In that I can imagine. I can it's imagine so James good. Cameron being at that point and being like, ah, oh, can you just add a guy? That's one guy who comes down and then like, dong. no, 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 it's not right. Do the gong again. The, the special sauce. Just keep hitting That's the gong. Make this a hit. hit it again. Hit it again. And this one's for the one boys. One more. It had the un- feeling, the unique placement of like in the double VHS set yeah. because the movie's so long that it's the first thing that happens when you pop the second VHS in. Uh-huh. You pop it in, and a minute rolls by, and then it's just him hitting the propeller, and it's like. <laughs> Yes, fuck the first VHS. Uh, <laughs> this is you know, the best part I of the movie. If, if they had added some frontal nudity into Jurassic Park, if it would have been just as big a hit. This is kind of a... Jeff Goldblum? Was, Jeff. It, was it not as big a hit? It was oh, huge. It was huge. It wasn't yeah. the biggest movie of all time like Titanic was. Was Titanic the biggest movie of all For time? For a while, yeah, it was. You need it was some huge. frontal nudity. Of I, the, I also have not seen Jurassic Park. No, no way. Come I've, on. I've read the script. <laughs> Chris Eaton, you silly fool. There's a lot of things. How do you have two children and you haven't watched Jurassic Park? There's a lot of funny things that I um, know a lot about and seem to have read, like... um, uh, uh, Terminator. Terminator. Oh, please don't... I have not seen the original Terminator, but I have read the script. What about two? Have you seen Terminator? I, I... Later, much yeah, later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was on TV one night, and I'm like, oh, I'll watch that. Oh, so you okay. have to have you have to watch Jurassic Park with your four year old. Like that's gonna be a great yeah, time for hook. you guys. It holds up. It's a good movie. And Jeff yeah. CGI still looks perfect. And Jeff Goldblum laughing like a cat in that. Uh. Fir- <laughs> <laughs> the funniest thing about Jeff Goldblum is he's the eye candy in the movie. <laughs> like he's he's approached like a like a Megan Fox type character. Oh, yeah. In, in the film, he kind of is laying around for a good third of the movie just in provocative poses with his shirt agasp 
open and that's and his glistening muscles that's like you know he's still retaining a bit of his like his like prime time sexuality from the fly Mm -hmm. where he's like still pretty fit and he's got those long like kind of curly locks happening (laughs) uh yeah he's he's quite a specimen (laughs) he rivals the russell (laughs) it is pretty crazy that he ever became a sex symbol that guy though yeah, yeah, he's he's that like kind of awkward, lanky, uh, socialite type. Have like, you seen the fly? Yeah. Oh, thank God. <laughs> that pose when the, the baboon jumps on top of him and he's posing like Tarzan in the in the mist. Yeah, a long time ago I saw that movie. <laughs> oh, and when he's he, he, he's doing like he's doing acrobatics on a bar in his apartment. <laughs> he's doing like flips. <laughs> Around a bar, and she's just watching, like, just so wet and amazed by it, being like, oh, my God. <laughs> and he plays piano for a for a, a, a spell. Yeah. On their first date. Yeah, God. what a, That's a fucking great movie. God. Tragedy of the Fly. We're doing... Uh, I, I'm totally... My memory is going to be totally wrong. For some reason, I feel like it's Gina Davis, but it's... It, no, it is. Not. It's oh, it 100% is. Gina Davis. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The only woman tall enough to not look ridiculous beside Jeff, Jeff Goldblum. Goldblum. Yeah. They did it and in real so, life for that reason. And so what did... Uh, uh, what has Jeff Goldblum done recently? Because I feel like I've seen him in stuff recently that's he been awesome. He was in that terrible Budapest Hotel movie. Oh, I didn't see that. I don't you didn't that. like that? I hated I, it. I don't we'll do talk it. about that another time. Because that's, <laughs> uh, that's a big thing. But he was in Life I Aquatic. I have been talking about this online, have we not? Maybe. I've oh, no, t- no, no, no. Because you said that you didn't want to b- go public with it. So oh, shit. Oh, no, shit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You've been out of it. I don't go in and get up on anything. Yeah. It's well, great. that's... I, I respect it's that. great movie. What? Grand Budapest? <laughs> I think I think it's a... I, I, think haven't, it's, I haven't seen it, actually. But. Uh, I think it's a... I think it's pretty good. I, I, it's different. I And I think if you're going to see, like, a continuation of Wes Anderson's, like, Impossibly Rich People mm-hmm. series... It's not that mm-hmm. he's definitely broken away and stopped making those really like niche art pop movies, and that Grand Budapest is a little more entertaining for like a broader Cameron, spectrum. The way of Cameron desca- described it, and I really, I really agreed. Was he? He said it's a Fabergé egg. You know, it's this elaborately staged, art directed thing that's ultimately meaningless. Yeah, and once you've seen once you've seen one Fabergé egg, you're like, ah, it's pretty. That's pretty cool. You sure did spend a lot of money uh, on that. That's another just another Fabergé egg. Mm-hmm. That's the way I feel like. Okay, I, I, and, no, and, and actually, I have no problem saying this. I think about about his Wes Anderson's work because I think because I, I think he's kind of a genius. Mm-hmm. I just think he's doing the same thing over and over. And right. I, I thought that. Grand Budapest was a departure from that in the sense that almost all of his movies from Bottle Rocket, it, it was this theme of the protagonist getting so, becoming so impossibly rich and unrelatable on this sort of uh, livable scale. Like, Bottle Rocket it stars like two moderately rich people who like don't have to work and so they, they're obsessed with becoming like career criminals and then it goes on through like you know Rushmore and Royal Tannenbaums, where they get richer and richer. By the time he gets to Life Aquatic, uh, by the time he gets to Life Aquatic, they own their own island, their own uh, sub hunter, their own uh, helicopter. Moonrise Kingdom's uh, not like that. But that's, that's what uh, it, it went, that's when it changes. He, he eventually he gets to Darjeeling Limited, and Darjeeling Limited uh, kind of proposes these three brothers' family are so rich that like they don't understand the concept of work. 
they're they're so rich that nothing at all matters to them. Nothing physical or corporeal like matters to them at all. They're just kind of wandering around through the world, not worried about how they'll pay for anything. And then I feel he got criticized a lot for having this sequence of movies in which people were so impossibly rich and unrelatable that he he did Fantastic Mr. Fox and Moonrise Kingdom and Grand Budapest to try and relate to a broader spectrum of people and try and get past that like writing about the impossibly rich and unrelatable. I just can't believe we've come full circle in this way. Yeah. That basically Wes Anderson has made movies about what we've already talked about right in yeah. the beginning. But the, um, uh, yeah, I know that's an interesting theory. Yeah. I, I was, that's a hell of an essay you got, got started there. Um, that, but, that, but, but, but I, but I feel, I feel like I was more interested in it when, but what about Rushmore? Rushmore's not about an impossibly rich person. He, uh, it's I mean, like a, it's a, about a kid going beginning. to a private school yeah. who's, but he who, doesn't get more rich. He, oh, but, but he's, he's being set up for a life of like being a playwright, being someone who's like given grants and given money to do things. He has yeah. a triumph at the end with that crazy musical. He puts a crazy on. musical. And then, you know, the get to Royal wow. Tenenbaums and their family is just like, you know, yeah. one of one of them is a professional tennis player, and one of the, just like they don't have none of them have real jobs mm-hmm. or have ever had real jobs. Like, and even the outcast like kind of kid that they brought into the family, Owen Wilson, is like just a crazy drug addicted writer. Yeah, like no, none of them have any kind of concept of work, and it's sort of that Arrested Development thing where mm-hmm. like when people, a lot of people didn't like Arrested Development because it was about a rich family which they could not find any commonality. Right. Like, they couldn't find any sort of emotional connection to this family that didn't have to ever worry about money or working. Did you guys like Squid and the Whale? I love Squid and the Whale. Squid and the Whale, I felt like, um, to me, it felt like a natural evolution. Yeah. Like, I was hoping that Wes Anderson was going to, like, take what he had started in his early movies and bring it a little bit more grounded yeah. Make the characters a little more human, a little bit more in the real world. And I felt like Squid and the Whale was kind of that. It came yeah. along just at the right time where it felt like this would be a nice evolution. Well, because they had written Rushmore together as mm-hmm. well, no? Right? Like, didn't they not? They were the team for the first few movies. I think so. Maybe yeah. not Maybe not Rushmore, but I th- but definitely the next two. Uh-huh. Titan Bombs and Life Aquatic. Am I yeah. saying that right? Yeah. yeah. I think so. Um, yeah, no, uh-huh. that that's totally There's it. Like, parallels, I, but Squid I, and the Whale I feel is... like Squid and the Whale went exactly the direction that I wanted to, mm-hmm. and, and I think that um, I'd say pre working with Wes Anderson, yeah, um, which is Noah Baumbach, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, his stuff. Like, I went back and watched um, Kicking and Screaming. Is that his yeah. first? The big first movie, Criterion, I think, is part of their collection. It's it's. It's really funny for about 20 minutes. And then you're just like, oh, my God. I just wish all these people would shut up. <laughs> yeah. Like, cause there's kinda, a bit of bait it, at the beginning. Well, there's, they... but it's the same kind of characters. Like, the, the way that they talk, I think, works well with the Wes Anderson model because they're not also just assholes. They're kind of mm-hmm. just more vacuous or something but there's the the, the two of them together made a great team yeah did they do uh fox together too fantastic mr fox who was the co-writer on that somebody it was i'm not sure that one i i did like that one i I think they may have gone come back together and done that yeah yeah i i think that fantastic mr fox uh, was a highlight for me just because 
you know, it wasn't his material. And yeah. I think that not enough people have been mining Roald Dahl. Who's yeah. like one of the better children's writers of yeah. ever. They you know? instead of instead of taking the amazing opportunity to uh, follow up on the sequels to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the Great Glass Elevator, one of the most amazing the, with kids the, books with the vermicious Canid as the the enemy. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the why wouldn't they make that up in outer space and all that? It's incredible. Yeah. Instead, let's just recast Johnny Depp as Willy Wonka and mm-hmm. just make the same movie again, except creepier and less enjoyable. Uh, now you you guys are one. Want to get me to like diss Tim Burton now? Get in a little closer to that mic. <laughs> diss Tim Burton way closer to that yeah. mic right now. Because fuck no, I think that Tim guy. Tim Burton is the like. Yeah, no, I shouldn't say something about Tim Burton. No, He's no, no. He's the worst. He's the worst. He's fucking terrible. I really, I've, I, I think all of his movies are super pretentious and not enjoyable. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think like, I've, I've, there. I, I'm sure there's gonna be one. Edward Scissorhands is good. Edward Scissorhands is okay. It's okay. Is good. Which uh, one? Sorry. Batman 1989. No, fuck that. Are you joking? It, it changed me? things a bit, but if you go back and look at it, it's really horrible. It's a fucking. I, I like Batman. God, I hate Batman, so I don't like. I especially don't yeah. like that movie. Uh, but yeah, cool. But and Johnny Depp too. I think Johnny Depp is a bit overrated. If, if he's listening, he's great. But if he's not, he's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> horrible. <laughs> no, like I, I can't think of a really like a great. Johnny Depp movie. Benny and June. Mm-hmm. That's pretty good. Uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. It's great Fear movie. and Loathing. That's uh, a good one. You know, he's again, he's just being that thing. He's the same as, as he is in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, I don't know. Just, is he just like crazy wacky guy? Well, he he's also went. Thompson. He, he like lived with Hunter S. Thompson Hunter for Thompson. like a year. <laughs> He, he really he did nail Hunter pretty pretty accurately. Yeah. As far as method acting goes, I think he's got that going on. But and I mean, it, just in terms of, you I just, know, I it's, not I, a, it's not a, it's not commonplace. It's not definitely not mainstream to be able to appreciate the capturing of an actual acid trip on film. But yeah, that but movie, is that, but is that him or Gilliam? Like, I, perfect I, I, at I capturing. I like Gilliam a lot. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like it, Gilliam is the one who like makes that stuff work. Mm-hmm. I like the combination of the yeah. two of them. Dude, to Del Toro is amazing in that. Oh mm-hmm. yeah, yep, pretty fantastic. Mm-hmm. And what but I would we, say, we also just give out Oscars all the time for people who would just gain fifty pounds. <laughs> <laughs> Dedication <laughs> yeah. to the role. Yeah, I was gonna say like just in terms of of criticizing. Uh, cultural things like when you're involved in making culture the thing that bothers me about the Wes Anderson stuff is like I'm not a hater like mm-hmm. I was with him I I'm rooting for him because yeah. I think he's talented and I think he's he's given a lot of opportunities and finances and stuff yes in an era where it's getting really hard for people to make movies yeah. and I just wish that he would do better you know and it's like I hate to see the missteps where something basic it's like the screenplay yeah send it to some people like get yeah. feedback on it like don't go into this self-indulgent hole where everybody tells you you're a genius and then you can just do whatever you want and and, and half your movies just filled with like these shots of like graphic design mm-hmm. which I know people who are really into that and love it but it's like it's not really a good movie well a, a big for instance like in uh, in Grand Budapest Hotel there's a sequence like a chase sequence where they're going through the hotel and um, a proto-Nazi type of army is chasing them through the hotel and they have a gunfight in the lobby. 
and you will never see on film a gunfight with less tension. It's literally like a bunch of bored actors firing pop guns at each other for about three minutes. And it has no purpose in the movie. It has no... It does nothing. It doesn't advance the plot. It doesn't like put anybody in danger. It has. It's vacuous, and it kept on like going through my imagination all the time after I left that movie. I was like, "How do you make a gun battle like so boring?" That might have been completely intentional, though. I feel like there's a lot of aspects of that movie where it seemed like he was going out of his way to to make a movie that sort of had action-like sequences, mm-hmm. but that were very, very empty mm-hmm. of any sort of tension. Like, there's that part where, like, a guy jumps into the pit of Nazis mm-hmm. and gets into the crazy knife fight. I liked that. And that was cu- a funny joke. It cuts away from him, and then it cuts back, and he's just being killed at the end of it and all, like, collapsing. Mm-hmm. And it was like, you know, it took all of the tension out of that fight because you don't actually see anybody get killed or hurt. My feeling about it was... It was very reminiscent of watching a silent film from the early days of of, of cinema, right? Yeah. And the thing about silent films, if like you watch Birth of a Nation or something, they're just figuring out how drama works on celluloid. Right. And so it's not particularly funny. It's not particularly exciting. They haven't got the timing down yet, Right. So you compare something like Grand Budapest to a Quentin Tarantino movie, for instance, where each scene in a Tarantino movie is like um, very genre heavy, but the funny scenes are funny. The scary scenes are scary. The sad scenes are sad. You know, he knows how to time a movie where there's an emotion that is that is pulled. Right. It's inspired. And Grand Budapest, every single scene was just like watching an American apparel ad or something where you have like these cold art directed scenes where a famous cameo person, a famous actor comes on for a cameo in a funny wig or in a funny outfit and they stare at the camera for three or four seconds. And then they deliver an awkward piece of dialogue that just advances the plot and doesn't tell you anything about the character. They're like, we need to get boy with apple into the elevator and leave immediately. And you're like, and then they turn to the other character Mm -hmm. and they say like, but first, we need to get the pastries from the, the fridge. Yes. One, two, three, go. And then they go get the pastries and they get on the elevator and the scene moves forward. Yeah. And then there's another cameo with, you know, Jeff Goldblum and a funny mustache. And he says, you know, you are all here to hear. You're all here to hear me read the will, the last will and testament of the dowager that died. And then there's a. So are, are you describing Budapest the or, whole moon, movie. or Moonrise Kingdom? <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That was the start of of something. But I feel like the tipping point happened at the midpoint of Moonrise Kingdom because I was with them when the starstruck lovers were forming their little beach and stuff and their hideaway. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. It's kind of like a reinterpretation of the Romeo and Juliet thing. And I've never really seen an erotic scene between like two uh, tween kids handled in a way that was like romantic, but also like not creepy in, in kind of a way. And then they totally kicked the legs out from under it by having a climax scene where these kids are rescued from drowning and that should be really theatrical and emotional, but you decide to stage it on like a plastic set with like cartoon rain clouds and things. I can't think of a better way to take all of the tension out of the scene and make it into, make the the ending the most boring part of the movie. 
And, uh, unless that's the thing. Like, I think if if he if that's his goal, I don't know if it's like it a works. successful goal. Like, it works. But I'd be I'd be really I'd be excited to read an interview where he was like, I what I wanted to do with that gunfight scene mm. is have a gunfight scene that has no tension. What I wanted to do with that rescue scene, I don't think it's the truth. So I easy. I don't think it's the truth. Is it easy? It's so easy to make a scene without any tension. The hard part is adding the tension. Like it, it's 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 a unrealistic scenario to put a bunch of actors together no, with fake guns. And not, not necessarily though. After he's established some kind of drama, right? Where like the the rescue and the gunfight and like all of these sort of these trope scenes mm-hmm. that replicate all these other movies, um, taking the tension out of them when you've already built tension otherwise, when you've created a storyline and characters that are interacting, mm-hmm. and then you're injecting them into these sequences that but for all purposes should actually be making things exciting and, and sporadic, and then sucking the life out of them, like having the story continue on this very same placid path, like yeah. a very like straight path without having it ever like jolt mm-hmm. to the exciting direction. Sure. If, we put all this weight on the on the director all the time. Like maybe um, part of the issue too is that you know when you talk about a, a movie like Rushmore, you've got Bill Murray versus um, Schwartzman, Schwartzman, Jason Schwartzman, um, and they're both so commanding and amazing. Mm-hmm. Like I, I I think both of them, whatever I've seen them in, uh, you know they've had both had missteps. I think, but they like they. They they will command the screen in that way, and it's hard to pick a twelve year old and know for sure. I don't know how, how old is Jason Schwartzman in that first movie. He's probably not twelve. No, he's definitely older he's than probably that. twenty. <laughs> he's probably honestly a, he's a very short and young looking person. Yeah. So they probably cast him as a fifteen sixteen year old and as a probably, twenty. And he probably was twenty. Whereas the kid in the in Moonrise Kingdom has definitely got to be twelve oh, or thirteen yeah, yeah. or whatever, mm-hmm. and he doesn't have the presence. And right. Maybe that's the thing. Maybe maybe it's just that for me, Rushmore works better because the actors have so much presence. Kids can't act. Kids can't fucking act. It's a problem <laughs> with movies. We've talked about this before. Uh, I see dead people. Oh, kids! <laughs> kids are kids are Billy Joe. Kids ruin everything. Kids. I don't know. No, no, no. no wait, wait, wait. I think in Looper. Okay, that the kid worked. That really young kid. Yeah, but even he had like his sort of weird like. It always just brings oh, me out yeah. of yeah. Southern Wild. The kids great. Yeah, there we go. There's mm-hmm. some. There's some kids who are great, and then then can't do it. The kids in um, George Washington. I haven't seen George Washington. Oh, you got to see George Washington. It's the David Gordon Green who just oh, became yeah. a major like pothead and stuff, and it's made some horrible, horrible movies. Mm. Again, which I guess I don't feel guilty about because I think he's one of my favorite directors ever. Sweet. I think George Washington. And then all the real girls, and then even Undertow yeah. are amazing movies. And then he's done all this like horrible stuff. I even I, I like he's bound and down, but I feel like he's wasting his time. He wasted his time oh, in that. It's the same director. Eh? He directed that's, about half the episodes of that. That's a great show, though. Um, <laughs> but he's st- and it's you can a triumphant tell, story. You can tell which ones he directs. The ones he directs are better. Yeah, but he's still like he's still not doing the quality of film that he started off. And he did a, a film uh, four or five years ago called The Prince of Something or Prince Valiant, maybe. Um, and 
it was okay was getting towards it but he made a movie like last year that was supposed to be um really good and i haven't seen it yet because mm-hmm. i have kids, have kids in it. it i don't have kids i don't know if it has kids in it but i have kids <laughs> and so i don't <laughs> i don't get to watch movies that much i think the, the biggest misconception about developing material for kids is that kids have any interest in watching other kids yeah. in a movie. When I was a no. kid, I didn't want to be fucking short round in Indiana Jones. I wanted to be Indiana Jones. Yeah. I want to be right. James Bond. I want to be Superman. I don't want to yeah. be You, you know, fantasize Superman about being an adult, kid. not just a different kid. Yeah. Yeah. And then like any any smart uh like you know, TV or filmmaker has realized just how useless children are. I mean, the with Game of Thrones, they uh, almost all of the characters that were like supposed to be really young, um, you know, at the time, uh, at the time when like the war starts, Rob Stark and Jon Snow are all supposed to be like fifteen, fourteen, mm-hmm. and fifteen. Yep. They're clearly twenty at least well, in the have, show. Yeah, they have beards for sure. They have beards. Oh, in the book, they're supposed to be fifteen. They're really? like fifteen, oh. and uh, Tommen, who like takes over as king, is supposed to be like. 10 or yeah. 11 and he's clearly like 16 or 17 in the show because they Sorry, just Tom knew is the new brother the, the new king he looks pretty young he looks young he's but probably, i think he's that what you're 12. saying is that in in that book i think he's like six he's super and, young and he's like adaptation he's 11 or 12 or something oh he's he they're billing him as being 11 or 12 but it's clear that the actor is 16 Older. yeah 16 uh, 17 he's he's i don't know He's getting up there. He's not ten. Just, I think you just think he's that guy from Veronica Mars. Well, <laughs> no, he just that's the same haircut. Just in the in like you know in the book they talk about he's like obsessed with kittens and he's really cute and he's got a kitten called Sir Pounce. But Sir then Pounce. in in the actual show when like they have to I'll have give you some real pussy. Mar- Mar- Marjorie, yeah, Marjorie. she tries to seduce she, him. So in the book she isn't. Well, not like that. And then it comes in and it's very like, you know, he's got this weird sort of like all pseudo-sexual vibe going on. And when he talks about Sir Pounce, it's still in that sort of like dismissive way that a teenager would start talking about his pet. Mm-hmm. He's not like, he's not 10. Like he was in the book. And it's a lot to do with like, if they cast real kids in that show, it would fucking ruin it. Okay. Well, no they, one, they, did, they did cast real kids for the first the two, two younger kids. Yeah, Arya. I can't think. Not Arya. Arya. Well, I mean, Arya is pretty been young. Like Bran, and then Bran. even the younger the one, one who disappeared. We looked it up though. Rickard and yeah. uh, Arya and Sansa. Yeah, they're old. The two younger. They're like almost twenty. They're almost yeah. twenty. But but, but Bran must forward. be old. Must be young. Mm. Bran was young at the start. Well, no, he's growing at a crazy rate, which yeah. means he's probably about like fifteen or sixteen yeah, now. Yeah, like, which means he was. 11 it's tougher to cast a young looking boy because they changed so much in puberty but like the the two younger daughters were probably 16 but i think aria was playing an eight-year-old or something yeah like she's just petite and and was she and if you think about it their actual roles she's older than bran no i don't even know yeah she is their actual roles in the show uh in the first season the first even maybe the first two seasons like much of the first season, Bran is paralyzed in a bed. Yeah, he just sleeps. He doesn't have any speaking lines. Yeah, and Arya is supposed to be playing this like kind of dumb girly, but like wants to be yeah. boyish girl, like chasing cats around. It perfectly fits like their kid role, and they didn't start giving them the heavy shit until like late season three, season four, yeah. where they're now launching them into their like adult roles yeah. as these characters. Which is awesome. You yeah. guys have been what I love turning up show. on set long enough. You've had your own trailer. 
you're evolving into a, a badass character just yeah. like your your screen protect your yeah. screen counterpart. Which they, which, which they knew starting off because mm-hmm. all that stuff is still in the books, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now they don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. They're apparently getting ahead of uh, Martin on the show. This yeah. next season is going to start jumping ahead yeah. because they were able to cover like so many different storylines. Yeah, that was an awkward conversation where you're like, you know, George, you're not getting any younger. And you seem to be quite rotund. I was wondering if you could just slide us the secret recipe for how this thing's going to wrap up. Just in case. We'll put it in the vault. I promise we won't touch it. Yeah, it's, it's got to be one of the... I mean, it's it's a very complex situation because yeah. he's now going to have to write... I mean, they've changed some things, apparently. I, haven't read the, I think I read it's going to make the books better. I think that he's going to be able to work with the writing team and he's going to say, this is what I had in mind. And they're like, but what about this? But what about that? And then he can like take the screenplays and convert it into the novel. I don't think he's going to finish them. No. And he, he added, I I think he's going to be like, it's done. The whole thing is given away. He added, he he added another book at least like another 2000 page manuscript. He said that he can't do it in seven. He's got to do it in eight books now. And the next book isn't due out to like, 2016 or 2017 so years and years and years from now at at the rate that they're producing the show they're gonna get so far ahead of him yeah like i don't see yeah. any reason there's for no, him there's, there's no way he'll finish. world two but they he, open up a, a a fucking interdimensional portal inside that three-eyed crow place and then they start a whole new other universe because DC that style that sort of genre mm-hmm. right like if you're reading a kind of a fantasy book like that if you know the answer, if you know, like at the end, that you know, I watched the, the video today it. that Jon Snow is the is a Targaryen and all this stuff. Yeah. Like, if you, if 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 all that ends up being true, why would you read the books? Like, people read the books because they're carried away by these plots. Mm-hmm. If they know the plot already, I don't think they will read the books. Right. Um. So is there any? Uh, and, but I don't. But I don't think. I think this is the first example of it happening. But I don't see why there's a problem of it being the situation where there are these four or five books, mm-hmm. and then the rest of the story continues in TV. And uh, <laughs> Martin came out recently. He's very angry at all the people who are saying that he's going <laughs> to die. He was just like, "Fuck you all! I'm not going to die before I finish these books." But I think that's wishful thinking. He is. Old and not healthy looking. Imagine he releases a a defiant YouTube video of him lifting barrels and stuff above his head and having sex with like three wenches at a time and drinking heavily from a stein. Speaking of which, (laughs) I um, on my vacation last week, uh, I was up late one night my my one-year-old was sick and i ended up we were at we don't have tv at our house so when we're at people's houses visiting Mm -hmm. i just like i'm compulsive tv watcher and um it was one of the strongest man competitions and the mountain and the The mountain mountain, is is a strong man thing Mm -hmm. and he sucks oh Oh, actually, no. He's like second strongest man in the world. Has he, he won some? He's, he's never won the actual the actual Strongman title, but he doesn't feel the need to because now he's launched his career into being an actor. As strongman. an actor, sure. But like, but he can but, lift a thousand pounds deadlift up to his waist. Yeah, but all these other dudes can do that too. Yeah, they're all like doing stuff like, and it's it's just like you're like, oh my god, this is the mountain, and he's gonna just like rip Destroy their eyes everyone. out and stuff. And then it didn't. Happen. And then he like couldn't lift this thing from here to here and you're like oh 
The mountain's not that cool anymore. Uh oh. Oh, I'm sorry. That man and he's is not that big. insanely strong. And they do some sort of like angles or CGI to make him look bigger, right? Like yeah, he, yeah. He's not as big. Well, they cast very small extras for him to kill. In yeah? that one scene when he's like slashing extras, is they're that, all like really? five foot people. Yeah, yeah, really? yeah. So they look very, very tiny in comparison. Yeah. You guys Has ever it, seen that uh, YouTube show with the two guys that have invented their own super sharp medieval sword that's available to buy through Amazon? No, sorry. What? <laughs> oh, my God. It's lovely. They're two hardcore sword nerds, and they've gone into entrepreneurial business uh, selling their own authentic razor-sharp war sword and you swing it with uh two hands it's got like a special leverage to it where your hands are far enough apart that an average person can actually wield it that's a war sword and (laughs) they approach it like an old school infomercial that like you'd see on tv in the middle of the night and they do demonstrations where they hang up like an entire pig carcass and this um this large round man with a big walrus mustache he picks up this war sword and he cleaves the pig in half with like one blow and then they'll like mount kind of like deadliest warrior type stuff they'll have like just the 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 disembodied head on like a a like clay pots full of blood Mm -hmm. hanging from ropes and they just fucking slash (laughs) through it two style and they slash through it and they go like you know don't confuse this with other consumer swords this is a real weapon, real deadly weapon. It's not uh, It's not like the kind of thing you'd buy at the fucking exhibition for a couple hundred dollars. He's like, this is gilded steel. It, look, at the, look at the flex. And they like put it in the vice and they can flex it by like 30 degrees and stuff. Oh, it's, it's so incredible. Are, are we going to go back to Young Guns too? <laughs> <laughs> You'll only be the guy who killed Billy the Kid. Again. Pat Garrett. <laughs> who played yeah. Pat Garrett? I forget. But they're they're all like famous. They're all famous people, are they, they not? Ex- except for him. Sorry, are we talking about Quick and the Dead? <laughs> <laughs> the much better film. That should be the next audio commentary. Sharon Stone's Quick, Quick and the, the Dead. Dead. Oh man. Four twenty to DiCaprio. Human. There's a fucking DiCaprio movie right there. <laughs> hmm That's a great scene. DiCaprio. When he tries to kill his dad. <laughs> D- did I get him? <laughs> did I kill him? <laughs> Oh, I, I don't want to so die. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I was a big fan of Young Guns, the original Young Guns, when I was a kid. I love that scene where they throw Billy the Kid out in the trunk and the yeah, and he was <laughs> 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 totally. The, who is it? Uh, and he's Bamba, the, and, and then he's in the game. Yeah, La Bamba was there. Escapes. Yeah, Lou Diamond Phillips. And he's like Charlie, do the triple deke. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we, I need a cookie break. Let's break I, it up. I got us some good cookies. I'm sure that like of all the movies I saw, like as a whatever age I would have been at that point at that point. I think Young Guns sits with me even stronger than Indiana Jones does. Mm. Like that, I like I came out being like, yeah. There was a couple of times where uh, I felt the oh, same sorry, way. Are we still, where, are we still recording? Yeah, I just keep it recording because a lot of times Brendan says something yeah. good, and then, uh, but yeah, like you forget, right? Like sometimes you'll see a trailer or something on the internet, and you'll go yeah. like, 
I watched the shit out of that movie, yeah. and I've completely forgotten that it used to be my, one of my favorite things. And there was that big controversy about that scene. I don't know if it's the first movie or the second movie, where they're running the horses down the hill, mm. and they're turning, like, the, the horses trip fall. and start falling over each other, and they're like... We and didn't hurt any horses. It's like, fuck, you didn't hurt any horses. Mm-hmm. Like, what? Did, how did the hell did you do that shot? That. Have you ever watched the making of uh, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? It's how hilarious. many horses they killed. I forget the name of the director, but he's got such a perfect 1960s uh, director uh, bravado. Yeah, machoism. Like he's talking about the the casting of the female lead in that movie, and how he's like she's cute as hell and she really knows how to deliver a line. Great <laughs> actress, I think she's gonna have a great career. In some ways, Catherine was miscast for the part. Uh, the real Edda probably had more mileage on her and was a good bit tougher. Uh, but Catherine has other great qualities going for her. She has an enormous appeal on the screen. Uh, she's cute. She's sexy as hell. And she projects a kind of a vulnerability that's very endearing. And then he's he's examining all the scenes where, like, the horses had to fall down. And he's very uh, casually talking about how, you know, you could hire a stunt horse, but it requires an all, a lot of extra planning, a lot of extra time. We were in Mexico, so we decided to just hook explosive charges to the horse, blow the leg off. It was a much more quick and easy way to, to film the scene. Wow. I'm sorry about the horse, but the horses are $50 in Mexico. <laughs> To get the mule to fall, we used a technique that's illegal in the United States called a flying W. The mule gets up a good run, and the wrangler jerks the wires and pulls his front feet out from under him, and he goes over on his face. Uh, there's a chance of breaking the animal's neck in this technique, but fortunately we didn't. <laughs> it's <laughs> totally old school. Um, that Alejandro Jodorowsky film, Holy Mountain, there's just like a whole scene at the beginning where he blows up hundreds of frogs and lizards with explosives. And he's like recreating like the invasion of Mexico, and with frogs and lizards, with frogs and lizards dressed up in little like uh, robes and hats, and then he just blows up this gigantic thing. It's all with individual explosives. And it's super super bloody and like ruthless. It's just like man, where do you draw the line on uh, on animal cruelty? It's like Magnolia. Yeah. I can't imagine. <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> the other thing that's crazy is um, when it comes to audio stuff, the thing that's powerful about music is you can listen to it while you're doing other things. And so it becomes a very easy transition. It, it spreads really easy into people's minds. Yeah. As soon as you decide to do like a commentary track for a movie, then it kind of is intended that you should be watching the movie while you're listening to the thing. Yeah. And then that immediately makes it like the uh, most, most of the people who like these long podcasts are doing something repetitive, like either working out or rotoscoping, rotoscoping on like a movie thing or yeah. doing compositing. And, um, it, you know, they keep on it, d- getting distracted and going like, Oh, this is making me want to watch ghostbusters. Right. Sure. Uh, yeah. So, but yeah, it's a, it, working. The thing that I like about just starting a project, like a podcast is that uh, you, you wind it up like a top and see where it goes, like John Lennon said. You know, you, yeah. you see what works and what doesn't, and you know, eventually you'll you'll hit on a format that you like. Fact, yeah, I mean, we sort of have the, a, fo- a loose format of what we're doing, but it's still very like work in progress. 
I don't always show up. <laughs> this is progress. This is the progress. Yeah. You get excited when there is a guest. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, we've done like four episodes where it's just you and me. And I, I want to, like, limit the number of times in which it's just <laughs> you and me talking for two hours. And the pauses. Because, like, to be a little creepy. Like pauses. We, we, do, <laughs> we talk through the whole thing. Yeah, and I mean, the, the funny thing is, like, uh, it, I, I tend to find that, like, in most of the people that I know, it's you, you've reached a, a cultural tipping point where, like, everybody you know has probably got some sort of university degree. They've got, like, an amount of, like, free time where they spend uh spare cycles thinking about like life philosophy and yeah. like where things are headed um and they have access to a ton of information and current events so it's not uncommon to expect that the average person is fascinating you know like it used to be that you had to have variety shows where you hope that dick van dyke shows up because he's more interesting than the average asshole yeah but now the average asshole is way more interesting than dick van dyke you hope yeah. And in fact, that like there might be something limiting about being a, a person like a um, who like a Tila Tequila or fucking who's a, a celebrity Justin Bieber or whatever. I guess Justin Bieber is a bad example because he's crazy. But um, some, somebody who's Tequila's like in a cultural crazy. a cultural box where like they've decided because they're uh, Kobe Bryant, they can't be seen doing certain things that would undermine mm. their brand. Because so, they decided that they're Boutros, Boutros, Gali. They like, <laughs> but like maybe Kobe's not allowed to like explore uh, the part of his personality that wanted to always be a painter or whatever. And uh, you know, the average person isn't afraid to have a, a looseness like that, where they're mm. in a state of becoming, and they have lots of weird interests, and they want to share them. I'd love to do a podcast with George W. Bush. I feel like he's in that beautiful discovery time in his life where he's like starting to paint, and just like everything he does is really is has this like sort of sense of like wonderment in it. Mm. I want to talk to that guy for a few he's hours. Vulnerable. He's vulnerable. He doesn't. He's not in a. He's not in a position where he can hurt anyone anymore. And so, like at this point, in it, for, from like history's perspective, he's completely harmless. And like he's just painting really cute pictures of like his dog or like him in the shower. Yeah. Like that glimpse he caught of himself in the mirror while he's taking a shower this morning. Really? He's like, I'm gonna paint that today. But you know, I really what? like that about it. It was interesting. Like Joe Rogan was talking about the same thing, and he he framed it very very sad, like how he sees it as. George Bush is this like internationally despised war criminal and he's locked up in his Texas ranch surrounded by secret service agents that will be following him for the rest of his life, protecting him against assassination. And he's slowly going mad and he's like locked in this, his place bored painting pictures, these sad looking naive portraits of like um, world leaders and things that used to be, uh, in his life and now aren't <laughs> and yeah he, he 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 portrays it or frames it as being like kind of a, a sign of insanity that he's got yeah, these photos of like fair. him in the tub and like painting pictures of his feet in the tub and stuff and of his terrier uh, i just think that's oh, cute and one more caveat one more added uh added beat to this story before we leave uh those paintings were hacked from George W. Bush's email. They were never intended to be shown publicly. Oh, really? And the hacker has been kidnapped by the CIA, charged. He's got a seven-year sentence for hacking into George W. Bush and releasing those beautiful paintings. 
So those cute paintings. There is no justice in the universe. You'd think George W. Bush, he'd be like, you know what? I've heard enough people. Let this man go. (laughs) He he showed the world my beautiful art, and now I'm on Jay Leno, and and people are seeing me in a new light. But instead, he turned me around to him. Harsh vengeance. Now I think uh, I think of Bush as just just a a cute old man who I'd love to spend an afternoon barbecuing with. Yeah, you would never have wanted him on your podcast otherwise. Nope. And in life, it was the evil Dick Cheney. Let's just give him an. Let's just give him an invite. Let's just send. GWB, the old come on, come on, the old podcast, buddy. Or what do you got to lose at this point? GWB, Josh Brolin playing George. (laughs) I promise I won't accuse you of being a lizard man if you come on the podcast. That's a good way to exonerate. You know what? In fact, if you definitely want to prove that you are not a lizard man, (laughs) come on the podcast. Otherwise, I'm pretty sure you are. Bohemian Grove. Anyways, that's it. Let's fucking finish her. Chris, do you have any parting words? Do you want <laughs> after that? After that 20-minute <laughs> rant. You know you'll always be <laughs> Okay, never mind. <laughs> Thanks for listening again, Good guys. Bye. Happy dreams come true. Here's a wish and a prayer. And, a da-da. and now till we meet again. Adios. Au revoir. Auf Wiedersehen. I don't know what that is. Shut up. From once well. Bye.